BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter 20 rural italy by rail fumigated according to law the sorrowing englishman night by the lake of como the famous lake its scenery como compared with tahoe meeting a shipmate we left milan by rail the cathedral six or seven miles behind us vast dreamy bluish snow-clad mountains twenty miles in front of us these were the accented points in the scenery the more immediate scenery consisted of fields and farmhouses outside the car, and a monster-headed dwarf and a moustached woman inside it. These latter were not show-people. Alas, deformity and female beards are too common in Italy to attract attention. We passed through a range of wild, picturesque hills, steep wooded cone-shaped with rugged crags projecting here and there, and with dwellings and ruinous castles perched away up toward the drifting clouds. We lunched at the curious old town of Como, at the foot of the lake, and then took the small steamer and had an afternoon's pleasure excursion to this place, Bellagio. When we walked ashore, a party of policemen, people whose cocked hats and showy uniforms would shame the finest uniform in the military service of the United States, put us into a little stone cell and locked us in. We had the whole passenger list for company. But their room would have been preferable, for there was no light, there were no windows, no ventilation. It was close and hot. We were much crowded. It was the black hole of Calcutta on a small scale. Presently a smoke rose about our feet, a smoke that smelled of all the dead things of earth, of all the putrefaction and corruption imaginable. We were there five minutes, and when we got out it was hard to tell which of us carried the vilest fragrance. These miserable outcasts called that fumigating us, and the term was a tame one indeed. They fumigated us to guard themselves against the cholera, though we hailed from no infected port. We had left the collars far behind us all the time. However, they must keep epidemics away somehow or other, and fumigation is cheaper than soap. They must either wash themselves or fumigate other people. Some of the lower classes had rather die than wash but the fumigation of strangers causes them no pangs. They need no fumigation themselves. Their habits make it unnecessary. They carry their preventive with them. They sweat and fumigate all the day long. I trust I am a humble and consistent Christian. I try to do what is right. I know it is my duty to 
pray for them that despitefully use me, and therefore, hard as it is, I shall still try to pray for these fumigating, macaroni-stuffing organ-grinders. Our hotel sits at the water's edge, at least its front garden does, and we walk among the shrubbery and smoke at twilight. We look afar off at Switzerland and the Alps, and feel an indolent willingness to look no closer. We go down the steps and swim in the lake. We take a shapely little boat and sail abroad among the reflections of the stars. Lie on the thwarts and listen to the distant laughter, the singing, the soft melody of flutes and guitars that comes floating across the water from pleasuring gondolas. We close the evening with exasperating billiards on one of those same old execrable tables. A midnight luncheon in our ample bedchamber, a final smoke in its contracted veranda facing the water, the gardens and the mountains, a summing up of the day's events, then to bed, with drowsy brains harassed with a mad panorama that mixes up pictures of France, of Italy, of the ship, of the ocean, of home, in grotesque and bewildering disorder. Then a melting away of familiar faces, of cities, and of tossing waves, into a great calm of forgetfulness and peace. After which, the nightmare. Breakfast in the morning, and then the lake. I did not like it yesterday. I thought Lake Tahoe was much finer. I have to confess now, however, that my judgment erred somewhat, though not extravagantly. I always had an idea that Como was a vast basin of water, like Tahoe, shut in by great mountains. Well, the border of huge mountains is here, but the lake itself is not a basin. It is as crooked as any brook, and only from one-quarter to two-thirds as wide as the Mississippi. There is not a yard of low ground on either side of it, nothing but endless chains of mountains that spring abruptly from the water's edge, and tower to altitudes varying from a thousand to two thousand feet. Their craggy sides are clothed with vegetation, and white specks of houses peep out from the luxuriant foliage everywhere. They are even perched upon jutting and picturesque pinnacles a thousand feet above your head. Again, for miles along the shores, Handsome country seats, surrounded by gardens and groves, sit fairly in the water, sometimes in nooks carved by nature out of the vine-hung precipices, and with no ingress or egress save by boats. Some have great broad stone staircases leading down to the water, with heavy stone balustrades ornamented with statuary, and fancifully adorned with creeping vines and bright-coloured flowers, for all the world like a drop-curtain in a theatre and lacking nothing but long-waisted, high-heeled women and plumed gallants in silken tights coming down to go serenading in the splendid gondola in waiting. A great feature of Como's attractiveness is the multitude of pretty houses and gardens that cluster upon its shores and on its mountain-sides. They look so snug and so homelike, and at eventide, when everything seems to slumber and the music on the vesper bells comes stealing over the water, one almost believes that nowhere else than on the lake of Como can there be found such a paradise of tranquil repose. From my window here in Bellagio I have a view of the other side of the lake now, which is as beautiful as a picture. A scarred and wrinkled precipice rises to a height of eighteen hundred feet. On a tiny bench halfway up its vast wall sits a little snowflake of a church, no bigger than a martin-box, apparently. Skirting the base of the cliff are hundred orange groves and gardens, flecked with glimpses of the white dwellings that are buried in them. In front three or four gondolas lie idle upon the water, 
and in the burnished mirror of the lake, mountain, chapel, houses, groves, and boats, are counterfeited so brightly, and so clearly, that one scarce knows where the reality leaves off, and the reflection begins. The surroundings of this picture are fine. A mile away, a grove-plumed promontory juts far into the lake, and glasses its palace in the blue depths. In midstream, a boat is cutting the shining surface, and leaving a long track behind, like a ray of light. The mountains beyond are veiled in a dreamy purple haze. Far in the opposite direction, a tumbled mass of domes and verdant slopes and valleys bars the lake, and here, indeed, does distance lend enchantment to the view, for on this broad canvas sun and clouds and the richest of atmosphere have blended a thousand tints together, and over its surface the filmy lights and showy drift, hour after hour, and glorify it with a beauty that seems reflected out of heaven itself. Beyond all question, this is the most voluptuous scene we have yet looked upon. Last night the scenery was striking and picturesque. On the other side, crags and trees and snowy houses were reflected in the lake with a wonderful distinctness, and streams of light from many a distant window shot far abroad over the still waters. On this side, near at hand, great mansions, white with moonlight, glared out from the midst of masses of foliage that lay black and shapeless in the shadows that fell from the cliff above, and down in the margin of the lake every feature of the weird vision was faithfully repeated. Today we have idled through a wonder of a garden attached to a ducal estate, but enough of description is enough, I judge. I suspect that this was the same place the gardener's son deceived the lady of Lyon with, but I do not know. You may have heard of the passage somewhere. A deep vale, shut out by alpine hills from the rude world, near a clear lake margined by fruits of gold and whispering myrtles, glassing softness skies, cloudless, save with rare and roseate shadows, a palace lifting to eternal heaven its marbled walls, from out a glossy bower of coolest foliage musical with birds. That is all very well, except the clear part of the lake. It certainly is clearer than a great many lakes, but how dull its waters are compared with the wonderful transparence of Lake Tahoe! I speak of the north shore of Tahoe, where one can count the scales on a trout at a depth of a hundred and eighty feet. I have tried to get this statement off at par here, but with no success. So I have been obliged to negotiate it at fifty percent discount. At this rate I find some takers—perhaps the reader will receive it on the same terms ninety feet instead of one hundred and eighty. But let it be remembered that those are forced terms, sheriff's sale prices. As far as I am privately concerned, I abate not a jot of the original assertion that in those strangely magnifying waters one may count the scales on a trout—a trout of the large kind—at a depth of a hundred and eighty feet, may see every pebble on the bottom, might even count a paper of dray pins. People talk of the transparent waters of the Mexican Bay of Acapulco, but in my own experience I know they cannot compare with those I am speaking of. I have fished for trout in Tahoe, and at a measured depth of eighty-four feet I have seen them put their noses to the bait, and I could see their gills open and shut. I could hardly have seen the trout themselves at that distance in the open air. As I go back in spirit, and recall that noble sea, Reposing among the snow-peaks six thousand feet above the ocean, the conviction comes strong upon me again that Como would only seem a bedizened little courier in that august presence. 
sorrow and misfortune overtake the legislature that still from year to year permits tahoe to retain its unmusical cognomen tahoe it suggests no crystal waters no picturesque shores no sublimity tahoe for a sea in the clouds a sea that has character and asserts it in solemn calms at times at times in savage storms a sea whose royal seclusion is guarded by a cordon of sentinel peaks that lift their frosty fronts nine thousand feet above the level world a sea whose every aspect is impressive whose belongings are all beautiful whose lonely majesty types the deity tahoe means grasshoppers it means grasshopper soup it is indian and suggestive of indians they say it is paiute possibly it is digger i am satisfied it was named by the diggers those degraded savages who roast their dead relatives then mix the human grease and ashes of bones with tar and gaum it thick all over their heads and foreheads and ears and go caterwauling about the hills and call it mourning these are the gentry that named the lake people say that tahoe means silver lake limpid water falling leaf bosh it means grasshopper soup the favorite dish of the digger tribe and of the paiutes as well it isn't worth while in these practical times for people to talk about indian poetry there never was any in them except in the fenimore cooper indians but they are an extinct tribe that never existed i know the noble red man i have camped with the indians i have been on the warpath with them taken part in the chase with them for grasshoppers helped them steal cattle i have roamed with them scalped them had them for breakfast i would gladly eat the whole race if i had a chance but i am growing unreliable i will return to my comparison of the lakes como is a little deeper than tahoe if people here tell the truth they say it is eighteen hundred feet deep at this point but it does not look a dead enough blue for that tahoe is one thousand five hundred and twenty-five feet deep in the center by the state geologist's measurement they say the great peak opposite this town is five thousand feet high but i feel sure that three thousand feet of that statement is a good honest lie the lake is a mile wide here and maintains about that width from this point to its northern extremity which is distant sixteen miles from here to its southern extremity say fifteen miles it is not over half a mile wide in any place i should think its snow-clad mountains one hears so much about are only seen occasionally and then in the distance the alps tahoe is from ten to eighteen miles wide and its mountains shut it in like a wall their summits are never free from snow the year round one thing about it is very strange it never has even a skim of ice upon its surface although lakes in the same range of mountains lying in a lower and warmer temperature freeze over in winter it is cheerful to meet a shipmate in these out-of-the-way places and compare notes with him we have found one of ours here an old soldier of the war who is seeking bloodless adventures and rest from his campaigns in these sunny lands colonel j heron foster editor of a pittsburgh journal and a most estimable gentleman as these sheets are being prepared for the press i am pained to learn of his decease shortly after his return home m t End of chapter twenty chapter twenty one the pretty lago de lecho a carriage drive in the country astonishing sociability in a coachman sleepy land bloody shrines 
the heart of the home of priestcraft, a thrilling medieval romance, the birthplace of Harlequin, approaching Venice. We voyaged by steamer down the Lago de Lecho, through wild mountain scenery and by hamlets and villas, and disembarked at the town of Lecho. They said it was two hours by carriage to the ancient city of Bergamo, and that we would arrive there in good season for the railway train. We got an open barouche and a wild, boisterous driver, and set out. It was delightful. We had a fast team and a perfectly smooth road. There were towering cliffs on our left, and the pretty Lago de Lecho on our right, and every now and then it rained on us. Just before starting, the driver picked up, in the street, a stump of a cigar an inch long, and put it in his mouth. When he had carried it thus about an hour, I thought it would be only Christian charity to give him a light. I handed him my cigar, which I had just lit, and he put it in his mouth, and returned his stump to his pocket. I never saw a more sociable man. At least I never saw a man who was more sociable on a short acquaintance. We saw interior Italy now. The houses were of solid stone, and not often in good repair. The peasants and their children were idle, as a general thing, and the donkeys and chickens made themselves at home in drawing-room and bedchamber, and were not molested. The drivers of each and every one of the slow-moving market-carts we met were stretched in the sun upon their merchandise, sound asleep. Every three or four hundred yards, it seemed to me, we came upon the shrine of some saint or other, a rude picture of him built into a huge cross or a stone pillar by the roadside. Some of the pictures of the Saviour were curiosities in their way. They represented him stretched upon the cross, his countenance distorted with agony. From the wounds of the crown of thorns, from the pierced side, from the mutilated hands and feet, from the scourged body, from every hand-breadth of his person streams of blood were flowing. Such a gory, ghastly spectacle would frighten the children out of their senses, I should think. There were some unique auxiliaries to the painting which added to its spirited effect. These were genuine wooden and iron implements, and were prominently disposed round about the figure. A bundle of nails, the hammer to drive them, the sponge, the reed that supported it, the cup of vinegar, the ladder for the ascent of the cross, the spear that pierced the Saviour's side. The crown of thorns was made of real thorns, and was nailed to the sacred head. In some Italian church paintings, even by the old masters, the Saviour and the Virgin wear silver or gilded crowns that are fastened to the pictured head with nails. The effect is as grotesque as it is incongruous. Here and there, on the fronts of roadside inns, we found huge, coarse frescoes of suffering martyrs like those in the shrines. It could not have diminished their sufferings any to be so uncouthly represented. We were in the heart and home of priestcraft, of a happy, cheerful, contented ignorance, superstition, degradation, poverty, indolence, and everlasting uninspiring worthlessness. And we said fervently, it suits these people precisely. Let them enjoy it, along with the other animals, and heaven forbid that they be molested. We feel no malice toward these fumigators. We passed through the strangest, funniest, undreamt of old towns, wedded to the customs and steeped in the dreams of the elder ages, and perfectly unaware that the world turns round, and perfectly indifferent, too, as to whether it turns around or stands still. They have nothing to do but eat and sleep and sleep and eat, and toil a little when they can get a friend to stand by and keep them awake. They are not paid for thinking. They are not paid to fret about the world's concerns. 
They were not respectable people. They were not worthy people. They were not learned and wise and brilliant people. But in their breasts, all their stupid lives long, resteth a peace that passeth understanding. How can men calling themselves men consent to be so degraded and happy? We whisked by many a gray old medieval castle, clad thick with ivy that swung its green banners down from towers and turrets where once some old crusader's flag had floated. The driver pointed to one of these ancient fortresses and said, I translate, Do you see that great iron hook that projects from the wall just under the highest window in the ruined tower? We said we could not see it at such a distance, but had no doubt it was there. Well, he said, there is a legend connected with that iron hook. Nearly seven hundred years ago, that castle was the property of the noble Count Luigi Gerano Guido Alfonso de Genova. What was his other name? said Dan. He had no other name. The name I have spoken was all the name he had. He was the son of poor but honest parents. That is all right. Never mind the particulars. Go on with the legend. The legend. Well, then, all the world at that time was in a wild excitement about the Holy Sepulchre. All the great feudal lords in Europe were pledging their lands and pawning their plate to fit out men-at-arms, so that they might join the grand armies of Christendom and win renown in the Holy Wars. The Count Luigi raised money, like the rest, and one mild September morning, armed with battle-axe, portcullis, and thundering culverin, he rode through the greaves and bucklers of his donjon keep with as gallant a troop of Christian bandits as ever stepped in Italy. He had his sword, Excalibur, with him. His beautiful countess and her young daughter waved him a tearful adieu from the battering rams and buttresses of the fortress, and he galloped away with a happy heart. He made a raid on a neighboring baron and completed his outfit with the booty secured. He then razed the castle to the ground, massacred the family, and moved on. They were hardly fellows in the grand old days of chivalry. Alas, those days will never come again. Count Luigi grew high in fame in Holy Land. He plunged into the carnage of a hundred battles, but his good Excalibur always brought him out alive, albeit often sorely wounded. His face became browned by exposure to the Syrian sun in long marches. He suffered hunger and thirst. He pined in prisons. He languished in loathsome plague hospitals and many and many a time he thought of his loved ones at home, and wondered if all was well with them. But his heart said, Peace! Is not thy brother watching over thy household? Forty-two years waxed and waned. The good fight was won. Godfrey reigned in Jerusalem. The Christian hosts reared the banner of the cross above the holy sepulchre. Twilight was approaching. Fifty harlequins, in flowing robes, approached this castle wearily, for they were on foot and the dust upon their garments beckoned that they had travelled far. They overtook a peasant, and asked him if it were likely they could get food and hospital bed there, for love of Christian charity, and if perchance a moral parlour entertainment might meet with generous countenance. For, said they, this exhibition hath no feature that could offend the most fastidious taste. Marry, quoth the peasant, and it please your worships, ye had better journey many a good rood hence with your juggling circus than trust your bones in yonder castle. How now, sirrah, exclaimed the chief monk, explain thy rival speech, or by your lady it shall go hard with ye. Peace, good mountebank, I did but utter the truth that was in my heart. San Paolo be my witness that did ye but find the stout Count Leonardo in his cups, sheer from the castle's topmost battlements would he hurl ye all. 
Alack-a-day, the good Lord Luigi reigns not here in these sad times. The good Lord Luigi? Aye, none other, please your worship. In his day the poor rejoiced in plenty, and the rich he did oppress. Taxes were not known. The fathers of the church waxed fat upon his bounty. Travellers went and came with none to interfere, and whosoever would might tarry in his halls in cordial welcome, and eat his bread and drink his wine withal. But woe is me, some two and forty years agone, the good Count rode hence to fight for Holy Cross, and many a year hath flown since word or token have we had of him. Men say his bones lie bleaching in the fields of Palestine. And now? Now! God a mercy, the cruel Leonardo lords it in the castle. He wrings taxes from the poor. He robs all travellers that journey by his gates. He spends his days in feuds and murders, and his nights in revel and debauch. He roasts the fathers of the church upon his kitchen spits, and enjoyeth the same calling it pastime. These thirty years Luigi's countess hath not been seen by any in all this land, and many whisper that she pines in the dungeons of the castle, for that she will not wed with Leonardo, saying her dear lord still liveth, and that she will die ere she prove false to him. They whisper likewise that her daughter is a prisoner as well. Nay, good jugglers, seek ye refreshment otherwheres. T'were better that ye perished in a Christian way than that ye plunged from off yon dizzy tower. Give ye good day. God keep ye, gentle knave, farewell." But heedless of the peasant's warning, the players moved straightway toward the castle. Word was brought to Count Leonardo that a company of mountainbacks besought his hospitality. "'Tis well. Dispose of them in the customary manner. Yet stay. I have need of them. Let them come hither. Later cast them from the battlements. Or how many priests have ye on hand?" The day's results are meagre, good my lord. An abbot and a dozen beggarly friars is all we have. Hell and furies! Is the estate going to seed? Send hither the mountebanks. Afterward broil them with the priests." The robed and close-cowled harlequins entered. The grim Leonardo sate in the state at the head of his council-board. Ranged up and down the hall on either side stood near a hundred men-at-arms. "'Ha! villains!' quoth the Count. "'What can ye do to earn the hospitality ye crave?' Dread, lord, and mighty, crowded audience have greeted our humble efforts with rapturous applause. Among our body count we the versatile and talented Ugolino, the justly celebrated Rodolfo, the gifted and accomplished Roderigo. The management have spared neither pains nor expense. Sdeath! What can ye do? Curb thy prating tongue! Good, my lord, in acrobatic feats, in practice with the dumbbells, in balancing and ground and lofty tumbling are we versed. And sith your highness asketh me, I venture here to publish that in the truly marvellous and entertaining Zampilero station— GAG HIM! THROTTLE HIM! Body of Bacchus! Am I a dog that I am to be assailed with this polysyllable blasphemy like to this? But hold! Lucretia, Isabel, stand forth! Sirrah, behold this dame, this weeping wench! The first I marry within the hour, the other shall dry her tears or feed the vultures. Thou and thy vagabond shall crown the wedding with thy merry-makings. Fetch hither the priest." The dame sprang toward the chief player. "'Oh, save me!' she cried. "'Save me from a fate far worse than death. Behold these sad eyes, these sunken cheeks, this withered frame. See thou the wreck this fiend hath made, and let thy heart be moved with pity. Look upon this damoiselle. Note her wasted form, her halting step her bloomless cheeks where youth should blush, and happiness exult in smiles. 
hear us and have compassion this monster was my husband's brother he who should have been our shield against all harm hath kept us shut within the noisome caverns of his donjon keep for lo these thirty years and for what crime none other than i would not belie my troth root out my strong love for him who marches with the legions of the cross in holy land for oh he is not dead and wed with him save us oh save thy persecuted suppliants she flung herself at his feet and clasped his knees ha 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 shouted the brutal leonardo priest to thy work and he dragged the weeping dame from her refuge say once for all will you be mine for by my halidome that breath that uttereth thy refusal shall be thy last on earth never then die and the sword leapt from his scabbard quicker than thought quicker than the lightning's flash fifty monkish habits disappeared and fifty knights in splendid armor stood revealed fifty falchions gleamed in air above the men-at-arms and brighter fearsome than them all flamed excalibur aloft and cleaving downward struck the brutal leonardo's weapon from his grasp ah luigi to the rescue whoop ah leonardo tear an ounce oh god oh god my husband oh god oh god my wife my father my precious tableau count luigi bound his usurping brother hand and foot the practised knights from palestine made holy-day sport of carving the awkward men-at-arms into chops and steaks the victory was complete happiness reigned the knights all married the daughter joy wassail finis but what did they do with the wicked brother oh nothing only hanged him on that iron hook i was speaking of by the chin as how passed it up through his gills into his mouth leave him there couple of years ah uh, is is he dead six hundred and fifty years ago or such a matter splendid legend splendid lie uh, drive on we reached the quaint old fortified city of bergamo renowned in history some three-quarters of an hour before the train was ready to start the place has thirty or forty thousand inhabitants and is remarkable for being the birthplace of harlequin when we discovered that that legend of our driver took to itself a new interest in our eyes rested and refreshed we took the rail happy and contented i shall not tarry to speak of the handsome lago di gardi its stately castle that holds in its stony bosom the secrets of an age so remote that even tradition goeth not back to it the imposing mountain scenery that ennobles the landscape thereabouts nor yet of ancient padua or haughty verona nor of their montagues and capulets their famous balconies and tombs of juliet and romeo et al but hurry straight to the ancient city of the sea the widowed bride of the adriatic it was a long long ride but toward evening as we sat silent and hardly conscious of where we were subdued into that meditative calm that comes so surely after a conversational storm some one shouted venice and sure enough afloat on the placid sea a league away lay a great city with its towers and domes and steeples drowsing in a golden mist of sunset end of chapter twenty one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit LibriVox.org. the innocents abroad by mark twain chapter twenty two night in venice the gay gondolier the grand fete by moonlight 
the notable sights of Venice, the mother of the Republic's desolate. This Venice, which was a haughty, invincible, magnificent Republic for nearly fourteen hundred years, whose armies compelled the world's applause whenever and wherever they battled, whose navies well-nigh held dominion of the seas, and whose merchant fleets whitened the remotest oceans with their sails, and loaded these piers with the products of every clime, is fallen a prey to poverty, neglect, and melancholy decay. Six hundred years ago Venice was the autocrat of commerce. Her mart was the great commercial centre, the distributing house from whence the enormous trade of the Orient was spread abroad over the western world. Today her piers are deserted, her warehouses are empty, her merchant fleets are vanished, her armies and her navies are but memories. Her glory is departed, and with her crumbling grandeur of wares and palaces about her she sits among her stagnant lagoons, forlorn and beggared, forgotten of the world. She that in her palmy days commanded the commerce of a hemisphere, and made the weal or woe of nations with a beck of her puissant finger, is become the humblest among the peoples of the earth, a peddler of glass beads for women, and trifling toys and trinkets for schoolgirls and children. The venerable mother of the republics is scarce a fit subject for flippant speech or the idle gossiping of tourists. It seems a sort of sacrilege to disturb the glamour of old romance that pictures her to us softly from afar off as through a tinted mist, and curtains her ruin and her desolation from our view. One ought, indeed, to turn away from her rags, her poverty and her humiliation, and think of her only as she was when she sunk the fleets of Charlemagne when she humbled Frederick Barbarossa, or waved her victorious banners above the battlements of Constantinople. We reached Venice at eight in the evening, and entered a hearse belonging to the Grand Hôtel d'Europe. At any rate it was more like a hearse than anything else, though to speak by the card it was a gondola. And this was the storied gondola of Venice, the ferry-boat in which the princely cavaliers of the olden times were wont to cleave the waters of the moonlit canals, and look the eloquence of love into the soft eyes of patrician beauties, while the gay gondolier in silken doublet touched his guitar and sang as only gondoliers can sing. This the famed gondola, and this the gorgeous gondolier, the one an inky, rusty old canoe with a sable hearse-body clapped on to the middle of it, and the other a mangy, barefooted gutter-snipe with a portion of his raiment on exhibition which should have been sacred from public scrutiny. Presently, as he turned a corner and shot his hearse into a dismal ditch between two long rows of towering, untenanted buildings, the gay gondolier began to sing, true to the tradition of his race. I stood it a little while, then I said, "'Now here, Rodrigo González Michelangelo, I'm a pilgrim, and I'm a stranger, but I am not going to have my feelings lacerated by any such caterwauling as that. If that goes on, one of us has got to take water.' It is enough that my cherished dreams of Venice have been blighted forever as to the romantic gondola and the gorgeous gondolier. This system of destruction shall go no farther. I will accept the hearse, under protest, and you may fly your flag of truce in peace, but here I register a dark and bloody oath that you shan't sing. Another yelp, and overboard you go." I began to feel that the old Venice of song and story had departed forever, but I was too hasty. In a few minutes we swept gracefully out into the Grand Canal, 
and under the mellow moonlight the Venice of poetry and romance stood revealed. Right from the water's edge rose long lines of stately palaces of marble. Gondolas were gliding swiftly hither and thither, and disappearing suddenly through unsuspected gates and alleys. Ponderous stone bridges threw their shadows athwart the glittering waves. There was life and motion everywhere, and yet everywhere there was a hush, a stealthy sort of stillness, that was suggestive of secret enterprises of bravos and of lovers, and clad half in moonbeams and half in mysterious shadows. The grim old mansions of the Republic seemed to have an expression about them, of having an eye out for just such enterprises as these at that same moment. Music came floating over the waters. Venice was complete. It was a beautiful picture, very soft and dreamy and beautiful. But what was this Venice to compare with the Venice of midnight? Nothing. There was a fete, a grand fete, in honor of some saint who had been instrumental in checking the cholera three hundred years ago, and all Venice was abroad on the water. It was no common affair, for the Venetians did not know how soon they might need the saint's services again, now that the cholera was spreading everywhere. So in one vast space, say a third of a mile wide and two miles long, were collected two thousand gondolas, and every one of them had from two to ten, twenty, and even thirty colored lanterns suspended about it, and from four to a dozen occupants. Just as far as the eye could reach these painted lights were massed together, like a vast garden of many-colored flowers, except that these blossoms were never still. They were ceaselessly gliding in and out, and mingling together, and seducing you into bewildering attempts to follow their mazy evolutions. Here and there a strong red, green, or blue glare from a rocket that was struggling to get away splendidly illuminated all the boats around it. Every gondola that swam by us, with its crescents and pyramids and circles of colored lamps hung aloft, and lighting up the faces of the young and the sweet-scented and lovely below, was a picture, and the reflections of those lights so long, so slender, so numberless, so many-colored, and so distorted and wrinkled by the waves, was a picture likewise, and one that was enchantingly beautiful. Many and many a party of young ladies and gentlemen had their state gondolas handsomely decorated, and ate supper on board, bringing their swallow-tailed, white-cravatted varlets to wait upon them, and having their tables tricked out as if for a bridal supper. They had brought along the costly globe-lamps from their drawing-rooms, and the lace and silken curtains from the same places, I suppose, and they had also brought pianos and guitars and they played and sang operas, while the plebeian paper-lantern gondolas from the suburbs and the back alleys crowded around to stare and listen. There was music everywhere—choruses, string-bands, brass-bands, flutes—everything. I was so surrounded, walled in with music, magnificence, and loveliness, that I became inspired with the spirit of the scene, and sang one tune myself. However, when I observed that the other gondolas had sailed away, and my gondolier was preparing to go overboard, I stopped. The fete was magnificent. They kept it up the whole night long, and I never enjoyed myself better than I did while it lasted. What a funny old city this Queen of the Adriatic is! Narrow streets, vast gloomy marble palaces, black with the corroding damps of centuries, and all partly submerged. No dry land visible anywhere and no sidewalks worth mentioning. If you want to go to church, to the theatre, or to the restaurant, you must call a gondola. 
It must be a paradise for cripples, for verily a man has no use for legs here. For a day or two the place looked so like an overflowed Arkansas town, because of its currentless waters laving the very doorsteps of all the houses, and the cluster of boats made fast under the windows, or skimming in and out of the alleys and byways, that I could not get rid of the impression that there was nothing the matter here but a spring freshet, and that the river would fall in a few weeks, and leave a dirty high-water mark on the houses, and the streets full of mud and rubbish. In the glare of day there is little poetry about Venice, but under the charitable moon her stained palaces are white again, their battered sculptures are hidden in shadows, and the old city seems crowned once more with the grandeur that was hers five hundred years ago. It is easy, then, in fancy, to people these silent canals with plumed gallants and fair ladies, with Shylocks in gabardine and sandals, venturing loans upon the rich argosies of Venetian commerce, with Othellos and Desdemonas, with Iagos and Roderigos, with noble fleets and victorious legions returning from the wars. In the treacherous sunlight we see Venice decayed, forlorn, poverty-stricken, and commerceless forgotten and utterly insignificant. But in the moonlight her fourteen centuries of greatness fling their glories about her, and once more is she the princeliest among the nations of the earth. There is a glorious city in the sea, the sea is in the broad, the narrow streets, ebbing and flowing, and the salt sea weed clings to the marble of her palaces. No track of men, no footsteps to and fro lead to her gates. The path lies o'er the sea, invisible, and from the land we went as to a floating sea, steering in and gliding up her streets, as in a dream, so smoothly, silently, by many a dome, mosque-like, and many a stately portico, the statues ranged along an azure sky, by many a pile in more than eastern pride of old the residence of merchant kings, the fronts of some, though time had shattered them, still glowing with the richest hues of art, as though the wealth within them had run o'er. What would one naturally wish to see first in Venice? The bridge of size, of course, and next the church, and the great square of St. Mark, the bronze horses, and the famous lion of St. Mark. We intended to go to the bridge of size, but happened into the ducal palace first, a building which necessarily figures largely in Venetian poetry and tradition. In the senate-chamber of the ancient republic we wearied our eyes with staring at acres of historical paintings by Tintoretto and Paul Veronese, but nothing struck us forcibly except the one thing that strikes all strangers forcibly, a black square in the midst of a gallery of portraits. In one long row around the great hall, were painted the portraits of the doges of Venice, venerable fellows, with flowing white beards, for of the three hundred senators eligible to the office, the oldest was usually chosen doge. And each had its complimentary inscription attached, till you came to the place that should have had Marino Faliero's picture in it, and that was blank and black. Blank, except that it bore a terse inscription saying that the conspirator had died for his crime. It seemed cruel to keep that pitiless inscription still staring from the walls after the unhappy wretch had been in his grave five hundred years. At the head of the giant staircase where Marino Faliero was beheaded, and where the doges were crowned in ancient times, two small slits in the stone wall were pointed out, 
to harmless, insignificant orifices that would never attract a stranger's attention, yet these were the terrible lion's mouths. The heads were gone, knocked off by the French during their occupation of Venice, but these were the throats, down which went the anonymous accusation, thrust in secretly at dead of night by an enemy, that doomed many an innocent man to walk the bridge of sighs and descend into the dungeon which none entered and hoped to see the sun again. This was in the old days, when the patricians alone governed Venice. The common herd had no vote and no voice. There were one thousand five hundred patricians. From these, three hundred senators were chosen. From the senators, a doge and a council of ten were selected, and by secret ballot the ten chose from their own number a council of three. All these were government spies, then, and every spy was under surveillance himself. Men spoke in whispers in Venice, and no man trusted his neighbor, not always his own brother. No man knew who the Council of Three were, not even the Senate, not even the Doge. The members of that dread tribunal met at night in a chamber to themselves, masked and robed from head to foot in scarlet cloaks, and did not even know each other, unless by voice. It was their duty to judge heinous political crimes, and from their sentence there was no appeal. A nod to the executioner was sufficient. The doomed man was marched down a hall and out of the doorway, into the covered bridge of sighs, through it and into the dungeon, and unto his death. At no time in his transit was he visible to any save his conductor. If a man had an enemy in those old days, the cleverest thing he could do was to slip a note for the Council of Three into the lion's mouth, saying, "'This man is plotting against the government.' If the awful three found no proof, ten to one they would drown him anyhow, because he was a deep rascal, since his plots were unsolvable. Masked judges and masked executioners with unlimited power and no appeal from their judgments in that hard, cruel age were not likely to be lenient with men they suspected, yet could not convict. We walked through the hall of the Council of Ten, and presently entered the infernal den of the Council of Three. The table around which they had sat was there still, and likewise the stations where the masked inquisitors and executioners formerly stood, frozen, upright, and silent, till they received a bloody order, and then, without a word, moved off like the inexorable machines they were to carry it out. The frescoes on the walls were startlingly suited to the place. In all the other saloons, the halls, the great state chambers of the palace, the walls and ceilings were bright with gilding, rich with elaborate carving, and resplendent with gallant pictures of Venetian victories in war, and Venetian display in foreign courts, and hallowed with portraits of the Virgin, the Saviour of men, and the holy saints that preached the gospel of peace upon earth. But here, in dismal contrast, were none but pictures of death and dreadful suffering. Not a living figure but was writhing in torture, not a dead one but was smeared with blood gashed with wounds, and distorted with the agonies that had taken away its life. From the palace to the gloomy prison is but a step. One might almost jump across the narrow canal that intervenes. The ponderous stone bridge of size crosses it at the second story, a bridge that is a covered tunnel. You cannot be seen when you walk in it. It is partitioned lengthwise, and through one compartment walked such as bore light sentences in ancient times and through the other marched sadly the wretches whom the three had doomed to lingering misery and utter oblivion in the dungeons, 
or to sudden and mysterious death. Down below the level of the water, by the light of smoking torches, we were shown the damp, thick-walled cells, where many a proud patrician's life was eaten away by the long-drawn miseries of solitary imprisonment, without light, air, books, naked, unshaven, uncombed, covered with vermin, his useless tongue forgetting its office with none to speak to, the days and nights of his life no longer marked, but merged into one eternal eventless night, far away from all cheerful sounds, buried in the silence of a tomb, forgotten by his helpless friends, and his fate a dark mystery to them forever, losing his own memory at last, and knowing no more who he was or how he came there, devouring the loaf of bread and drinking the water that were thrust into the cell by unseen hands, and troubling his worn spirit no more with hopes and fears and doubts and longings to be free, ceasing to scratch vain prayers and complainings on walls where none, not even himself, could see them, and resigning himself to hopeless apathy, driveling childishness, lunacy. Many and many a sorrowful story like this these stony walls could tell, if they could but speak. In a little narrow corridor nearby they showed us where many a prisoner, after lying in the dungeons until he was forgotten by all save his persecutors, was brought by masked executioners and garroted, or sewed up in a sack, passed through a little window to a boat, at dead of night, and taken to some remote spot and drowned. They used to show to visitors the implements of torture wherewith the three were wont to worm secrets out of the accused, villainous machines for crushing thumbs, the stocks where a prisoner sat immovable, while water fell drop by drop upon his head, till the torture was more than humanity could bear, and a devilish contrivance of steel, which enclosed a prisoner's head like a shell, and crushed it slowly by means of a screw. It bore the stains of blood that had trickled through its joints long ago and on one side it had a projection whereon the torturer rested his elbow comfortably and bent down his ear to catch the moanings of the sufferer perishing within. Of course we went to see the venerable relic of the ancient glory of Venice, with its pavements worn and broken by the passing feet of a thousand years of plebeians and patricians, the Cathedral of St. Mark. It is built entirely of precious marbles, brought from the Orient. Nothing in its composition is domestic. Its hoary traditions make it an object of absorbing interest to even the most careless stranger, and thus far it had interest for me, but no further. I could not go into ecstasies over its coarse mosaics, its unlovely Byzantine architecture, or its five hundred curious interior columns from as many distant quarries. Everything was worn out. Every block of stone was smooth and almost shapeless, with the polishing hands and shoulders of loungers who devoutly idled here in bygone centuries, and have died and gone to the dev—no, uh, uh, simply died, I mean. Under the altar repose the ashes of St. Mark, and Matthew, Luke, and John, too, for all I know. Venice reveres those relics above all things earthly. For fourteen hundred years St. Mark has been her patron saint. Everything about the city seems to be named after him, or so named as to refer to him in some way, so named, or some purchase rigged in some way, to scrape a sort of hurrying acquaintance with him. That seems to be the idea. To be on good terms with St. Mark seems to be the very summit of Venetian ambition. They say St. Mark had a tame lion, and used to travel with him, and everywhere that St. Mark went the lion was sure to go. 
It was his protector, his friend, his librarian. And so the winged lion of St. Mark, with the open Bible under his paw, is a favorite emblem in the grand old city. It casts its shadow from the most ancient pillar in Venice, in the grand square of St. Mark, upon the throngs of free citizens below, and has so done for many a long century. The winged lion is found everywhere, and doubtless here, where the winged lion is, no harm can come. St. Mark died at Alexandria, in Egypt. He was martyred, I think. However, that has nothing to do with my legend. About the founding of the city of Venice, say, four hundred and fifty years after Christ, for Venice is much younger than any other Italian city, a priest dreamed that an angel told him that until the remains of St. Mark were brought to Venice, the city could never rise to high distinction among the nations, that the body must be captured, brought to the city, and a magnificent church built over it and that if ever the Venetians allowed the saint to be removed from his new resting-place, in that day Venice would perish from off the face of the earth. The priest proclaimed his dream, and forthwith Venice set about procuring the corpse of St. Mark's. One expedition after another tried and failed, but the project was never abandoned during four hundred years. At last it was secured by stratagem, in the year eight hundred and something. The commander of a Venetian expedition disguised himself, stole the bones, separated them, and packed them in vessels filled with lard. The religion of Mahomet causes its devotees to abhor anything that is in the nature of pork, and so when the Christian was stopped by the officers at the gates of the city, they only glanced once into his precious basket, then turned up their noses at the unholy lard and let him go. The bones were buried in the vaults of the grand cathedral, which had been waiting long years to receive them and thus the safety and the greatness of Venice were secured. And to this day there be those in Venice who believe that if those holy ashes were stolen away, the ancient city would vanish like a dream, and its foundations be buried forever in the unremembering sea. End of chapter 22 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 23. The Famous Gondola. The Gondola in an Unromantic Aspect. The Great Square of St. Mark and the Winged Lion. Snobs at Home and Abroad. Sepulchres of the Great Dead. A Tilt at the Old Masters. A Contraband Guide. The Conspiracy. Moving again. The Venetian gondola is as free and graceful in its gliding movement as a serpent. It is twenty or thirty feet long, and is narrow and deep like a canoe. Its sharp bow and stern sweep upward from the water, like the horns of a crescent with the abruptness of the curve slightly modified. The bow is ornamental, with a steel comb with a battle-axe attachment, which threatens to cut passing boats in two occasionally, but never does. The gondola is painted black, because in the zenith of Venetian magnificence the gondolas became too gorgeous altogether, and the Senate decreed that all such display must cease, and a solemn unembellished black be substituted. If the truth were known, it would doubtless appear that rich plebeians grew too prominent in their affection of patrician show on the Grand Canal, and required a wholesome snubbing. Reverence for the hallowed past and its traditions keeps the dismal fashion in force now that the compulsion exists no longer. So let it remain. It is in the color of mourning. 
Venice mourns. The stern of the boat is decked over, and the gondolier stands there. He uses a single oar, a long blade, of course, for he stands nearly erect. A wooden peg, a foot and a half high, with two slight crooks or curves in one side of it, and one in the other, projects above the starboard gunwale. Against that peg the gondolier takes a purchase with his oar, changing it at intervals to the other side of the peg, or dropping it into another of the crooks, as the steering of the craft may demand, and how in the world he can back and fill, shoot straight ahead, or flirt suddenly around a corner, and makes the oar stay in those insignificant notches, is a problem to me, and a never-diminishing matter of interest. I am afraid I study the gondolier's marvelous skill more than I do the sculptured palaces we glide among. He cuts a corner so closely now and then, or misses another gondola by such an imperceptible hair-breadth, that I feel myself scrooching, as the children say, just as one does when a buggy-wheel grazes his elbow. But he makes all his calculations with the nicest precision, and goes darting in and out among the Broadway confusion of busy craft with the easy confidence of the educated hackman. He never makes a mistake. Sometimes we go flying down the great canals at such a gait that we can get only the merest glimpses into front doors, and again in obscure alleys in the suburbs we put on a solemnity suited to the silence, the mildew, the stagnant waters, the clinging weeds, the deserted houses, and the general lifelessness of the place, and move to the spirit of grave meditation. The gondolier is a picturesque rascal, for all he wears no satin harness, no plumed bonnet, no silken tights. His attitude is stately, he is lithe and supple, all his movements are full of grace. When his long canoe and his fine figure, towering from its high perch on the stern, are cut against the evening sky, they make a picture that is very novel and striking to a foreign eye. We sit in the cushioned carriage-body of a cabin, with the curtains drawn, and smoke, or read, or look out upon the passing boats the houses, the bridges, the people, and enjoy ourselves much more than we could in a buggy jolting over our cobblestone pavements at home. This is the gentlest, pleasantest locomotion we have ever known. But it seems queer, ever so queer, to see a boat doing duty as a private carriage. We see businessmen come to the front door, step into a gondola, instead of a street-car, and go off downtown to the counting-room. We see visiting young ladies stand on the stoop and laugh and kiss good-bye, and flirt their fans and say, Come soon, now do, you've been just as mean as ever you can be, mother's dying to see you, and we've moved into the new house, oh, such a love of a place, so convenient to the post-office and the church and the young men's Christian association, and we do have such fishing and such carrying on and such swimming matches in the back yard. Oh, you must come, no distance at all, and if you go down through by St. Mark's and the Bridge of Sighs, and cut through the alley, and come up by the Church of Santa Maria de Frari, and into the Grand Canal, there isn't a bit of current. Now do come, Sally Maria. Bye-bye. And then the little humbug trips down the steps, jumps into the gondola, says under her breath, disagreeable old thing, I hope she won't, goes skimming away round the corner, and the other girl slams the street door and says, well, that infliction's over, anyway, but I suppose I've got to go and see her, tiresome stuck-up thing. Human nature appears to be just the same all over the world. We see the diffident young man, mild of moustache, affluent of hair, indigent of brain, elegant of costume, 
drive up to her father's mansion, tell his hackman to bail out and wait, start fearfully up the steps, and meet the old gentleman right on the threshold, hear him ask what street the new British bank is in, as if that were what he came for, and then bounce into his boat and scurry away with his coward heart in his boots, see him come sneaking around the corner again, directly, with a crack of the curtain open toward the old gentleman's disappearing gondola, and out scampers his Susan with a flock of little Italian endearments fluttering from her lips, and goes to drive with him in the watery avenues down towards the Rialto. We see the ladies go out shopping, in the most natural way, and flit from street to street and from store to store, just in the good old fashion, except that they leave the gondola, instead of a private carriage, waiting at the curbstone a couple of hours for them waiting while they make the nice young clerks pull down tons and tons of silks and velvets and moyer antiques and those things, and then they buy a paper of pins and go paddling away to confer the rest of their disastrous patronage on some other firm, and they always have their purchases sent home just in the good old way. Human nature is very much the same all over the world, and it is so like my dear native home to see a Venetian lady go into a store and buy ten cents worth of blue ribbon and have it sent home in a scow. Ah, uh, it is these little touches of nature that move one to tears in these far-off foreign lands. We see little girls and boys go out in gondolas with their nurses for an airing. We see staid families with prayer-book and beads enter the gondola dressed in their Sunday best and float away to church. And at midnight we see the theatre break up and discharge its swarm of hilarious youth and beauty. We hear the cries of the hackman gondoliers, and behold the struggling crowd jump aboard, and the black multitude of boats go skimming down the moonlit avenues. We see them separate here and there, and disappear up divergent streets. We hear the faint sounds of laughter, and of shouted farewells floating up out of the distance. And then, the strange pageant being gone, we have lonely stretches of glittering water of stately buildings, of blotting shadows, of weird stone faces creeping into the moonlight, of deserted bridges, of motionless boats at anchor, and over all broods that mysterious stillness, that stealthy quiet, that befits so well this old dreaming Venice. We have been pretty much everywhere in our gondola. We have bought beads and photographs in the stores, and wax matches in the great square of St. Mark. The last remark suggests a digression. Everybody goes to this vast square in the evening. The military bands play in the center of it, and countless couples of ladies and gentlemen promenade up and down on either side. The platoons of them are constantly drifting away towards the old cathedral, and by the venerable column with the winged lion of St. Mark on its top, and out to where the boats lie moored, and other platoons are as constantly arriving from the gondolas and joining the great throng. Between the promenaders and the sidewalks are seated hundreds and hundreds of people at small tables, smoking and taking granita, a first cousin, to ice-cream. On the sidewalks are more employing themselves in the same way. The shops in the first floor of the tall rows of buildings that wall in three sides of the square are brilliantly lighted. The air is filled with music and merry voices, and altogether the scene is as bright and spirited and full of cheerfulness as any man could desire. We enjoy it thoroughly. Very many of the young women are exceedingly pretty, and dress with rare good taste. We are gradually and laboriously learning the ill manners of staring them unflinchingly in the face, not because such conduct is agreeable to us, but because it is the custom of the country, and they say the girls like it. 
We wish to learn all the curious outlandish ways of all the different countries, so that we can show off and astonish people when we get home. We wish to excite the envy of our untraveled friends with our strange foreign fashions which we can't shake off. All our passengers are paying strict attention to this thing, with the end in view which I have mentioned. The gentle reader will never, never know what a consummate ass he can become until he goes abroad. I speak now, of course, in the supposition that the gentle reader has not been abroad, and therefore is not already a consummate ass. If the case be otherwise, I beg his pardon, and extend to him the cordial hand of fellowship and call him brother. I shall always delight to meet an ass after my own heart when I shall have finished my travels. On this subject let me remark that there are Americans abroad in Italy who have actually forgotten their mother tongue in three months, forgot it in France. They cannot even write their address in English in a hotel register. I append these evidences, which I copied verbatim from the register of a hotel in a certain Italian city. John P. Whitcomb, Etats-Unis. William L. Ainsworth, Travailleur, he meant traveller, I suppose, Etats-Unis. George P. Morton, Effis, d'Amérique. Lloyd B. Williams, et trois amis, ville de Boston, Amérique. J. Ellsworth Baker, tout de suite de France, place de naissance, Amérique, destination, la Grande-Bretagne. I love this sort of people. A lady passenger of ours tells of a fellow-citizen of hers who spent eight weeks in Paris, and then returned home, and addressed his dearest old bosom friend Herbert as Mr. Herbert. He apologized, though, and said, "'Pon my soul, it is aggravating, but I can't help it. I have got so used to speaking nothing but French, my dear Herbert. Damn, there it goes again. Got so used to French pronunciation that I can't get rid of it. It is positively annoying, I assure you.' This entertaining idiot, whose name was Gordon, allowed himself to be hailed three times in the street before he paid any attention, and then begged a thousand pardons, and said he had grown so accustomed to hearing himself addressed as Monsieur Gordon, with a roll of the R, that he had forgotten the legitimate sound of his name. He wore a rose in his buttonhole. He gave the French salutation, two flips of the hand in front of the face. He called Paris Paris in ordinary English conversation. He carried envelopes bearing foreign postmarks protruding from his breast-pocket. He cultivated a moustache, and imperial, and did what else he could to suggest to the beholder his pet fancy that he resembled Louis Napoleon, and in a spirit of thankfulness which is entirely unaccountable, considering the slim foundation there was for it, he praised his Maker that he was as he was, and went on enjoying his little life just the same as if he really had been deliberately designed and erected by the great architect of the universe. Think of our Whitcombs, and our Ainsworths, and our Williamses writing themselves down in dilapidated French in foreign hotel registers. We laugh at Englishmen, when we are at home, for sticking so sturdily to their national ways and customs, but we look back upon it from abroad very forgivingly. It is not pleasant to see an American thrusting his nationality forward obtrusively in a foreign land, but, oh, it is pitiable to see him making of himself a thing that is neither male nor female, neither fish, flesh, nor fowl, a poor, miserable, hermaphrodite Frenchman. Among a long list of churches, art galleries, and such things visited by us in Venice, I shall mention only one, the Church of Santa Maria dei Frari. It is about five hundred years old, I believe, and stands on twelve hundred thousand piles. 
In it lie the body of Canova and the heart of Titian, in magnificent monuments. Titian died at the age of almost one hundred years. A plague which swept away fifty thousand lives was raging at the time, and there is notable evidence of the reverence in which the great painter was held, in the fact that to him alone the state permitted a public funeral in all that season of terror and death. In this church also is a monument to the doge Foscari, whose name a once resident of Venice, Lord Byron, has made permanently famous. The monument to the doge Giovanni Pesaro in this church is a curiosity in the way of mortuary adornment. It is eighty feet high, and is fronted like some fantastic pagan temple. Against it stand four colossal Nubians, as black as night, dressed in white marble garments. The black legs are bare, and through rents and sleeves and breeches the skin of shiny black marble shows. The artist was as ingenious as his funeral designs were absurd. There are two bronze skeletons bearing scrolls, and two great dragons uphold the sarcophagus. On high amid all this grotesqueness sits the departed doge. In the conventual buildings attached to this church are the state archives of Venice. We did not see them, but they are said to number millions of documents. They are the records of centuries of the most watchful, observant, and suspicious government that ever existed, in which everything was written down and nothing spoken out. They fill nearly three hundred rooms. Among them are manuscripts from the archives of nearly two thousand families, monasteries, and convents. The secret history of Venice for a thousand years is here, its plots, its hidden trials, its assassinations its commissions of hireling spies and masked bravos, food ready to hand for a world of dark and mysterious romances. Yes, I think we have seen all of Venice. We have seen in these old churches a profusion of costly and elaborate sepulchre ornamentation such as we never dreamt of before. We have stood in the dim religious light of these hoary sanctuaries, in the midst of long ranks of dusty monuments and effigies of the great dead of Venice, until we seem drifting back, back, back into the solemn past, and looking upon the scenes and mingling with the people of a remote antiquity. We have been in a half-waking sort of dream all the time. I do not know how else to describe the feeling. A part of our being has remained still in the nineteenth century while another part of it has seemed in some unaccountable way walking among the phantoms of the tenth. We have seen famous pictures until our eyes are weary with looking at them, and refuse to find interest in them any longer. And what wonder, when there are twelve hundred pictures by Palma the Younger in Venice, and fifteen hundred by Tintoretto? And behold, there are Titians and works of other artists in proportion. We have seen Titian's celebrated Cain and Abel, his David and Goliath, and Abraham's sacrifice. We have seen Tintoretto's monster picture, which is seventy-four feet long, and I do not know how many feet high, and thought it a very commodious picture. We have seen pictures of martyrs enough, and saints enough, to regenerate the world. I ought not to confess it, but still, since one has no opportunity in America to acquire a critical judgment in art, and since I could not hope to become educated in it in Europe in a few short weeks, I may therefore as well acknowledge, with such apologies as may be due, that to me it seemed that when I had seen one of these martyrs, I had seen them all. They all have a marked family resemblance to each other. They dress alike, in coarse monkish robes and sandals. They are all bald-headed. They all stand in about the same attitude, and without exception they are gazing heavenward with countenance 
which the Ainsworths, the Mortons, the Williamses, et fils, inform me are full of expression. To me there is nothing tangible about these imaginary portraits, nothing that I can grasp and take a living interest in. If great Titian had only been gifted with prophecy, and had skipped a martyr, and gone over to England and painted a portrait of Shakespeare, even as a youth, which we could all have confidence in now, the world down to the latest generations would have forgiven him the lost martyr in the rescued seer. I think posterity could have spared one more martyr for the sake of a great historical picture of Titian's time and painted by his brush, such as Columbus returning in chains from the discovery of a world, for instance. The old masters did paint some Venetian historical pictures, and these we did not tire of looking at, notwithstanding representations of the formal introduction of defunct doges to the Virgin Mary in regions beyond the clouds, clashed rather harshly with the proprieties, it seemed to us. But, humble as we are, and unpretending in the matter of art, our researches among the painted monks and martyrs have not been wholly in vain. We have striven hard to learn. We have had some success. We have mastered some things, possibly of trifling import in the eyes of the learned, but to us they give pleasure, and we take as much pride in our little acquirements as do others who have learned far more, and we love to display them full as well. When we see a monk going about with a lion and looking tranquilly up to heaven, we know that that is St. Mark. When we see a monk with a book and a pen looking tranquilly up to heaven, trying to think of a word, we know that that is St. Matthew. When we see a monk sitting on a rock, looking tranquilly up to heaven, with a human skull beside him, and without other baggage, we know that that is St. Jerome, because we know that he always went flying light in the matter of baggage. When we see a party looking tranquilly up to heaven, unconscious that his body is shot through and through with arrows, we know that that is St. Sebastian. When we see other monks looking tranquilly up to heaven, but having no trademark, we always ask who those parties are. We do this because we humbly wish to learn. We have seen thirteen thousand St. Jeromes, and twenty-two thousand St. Marks, and sixteen thousand St. Matthews, and sixty thousand St. Sebastians, and four millions of assorted monks undesignated. And we feel encouraged to believe that when we have seen some more of these various pictures, and had a larger experience, we shall begin to take an absorbing interest in them, like our cultivated countrymen from Amérique. Now it does give me real pain to speak in this almost unappreciative way of the old masters and their martyrs, because good friends of mine in the ship, friends who do thoroughly and conscientiously appreciate them, and are in every way competent to discriminate between good pictures and inferior ones, have urged me for my own sake not to make public the fact that I lack this appreciation and this critical discrimination myself. I believe that what I have written, and may still write about pictures, will give them pain, and I am honestly sorry for it. I even promised that I would hide my uncouth sentiments in my own breast. But alas, I never could keep a promise. I do not blame myself for this weakness, because the fault must lie in my physical organization. It is likely that such a very liberal amount of space was given to the organ which enables me to make promises, that the organ which should enable me to keep them was crowded out. But I grieve not. I like no half-way things. I had rather have one faculty nobly developed than two faculties of mere ordinary capacity. I certainly meant to keep that promise, but I find I cannot do it. 
it is impossible to travel through Italy without speaking of pictures, and can I see them through other eyes? If I did not so delight in the grand pictures that are spread before me every day of my life by that monarch of all the masters, nature, I should come to believe sometimes that I had in me no appreciation of the beautiful whatsoever. It seems to me that whenever I glory to think that for once I have discovered an ancient painting that is beautiful and worthy of all praise, the pleasure it gives me is an infallible proof that it is not a beautiful picture, and not in any wise worthy of commendation. This very thing has occurred more times than I can mention in Venice. In every single instance the guide has crushed out my swelling enthusiasm with the remark, "'It is nothing. It is of the Renaissance.' I did not know what in the mischief the Renaissance was, and so always had to simply say, "'Ah, so it is. I had not observed it before.' I could not bear to be ignorant before a cultivated negro, the offspring of a South Carolina slave, but it occurred too often, for even my self-complacency did that exasperating, "'It is nothing. It is of the Renaissance.' I said at last, "'Who is this Renaissance? Where did he come from?' Who gave him permission to cram the Republic with his execrable daubs? We learned then that Renaissance was not a man, that Renaissance was a term used to signify what was at best but an imperfect rejuvenation of art. The guide said that after Titian's time, and the time of the other great names we had grown so familiar with, high art declined. Then it partially rose again, an inferior sort of painters sprang up, and these shabby pictures were the work of their hands. Then I said in my heat that I wished to goodness high art had declined five hundred years sooner. The Renaissance pictures suit me very well, though sooth to say its school were too much given to painting real men, and did not indulge enough in martyrs. The guide I have spoken of is the only one we have had yet who knew anything. He was born in South Carolina, of slave parents. They came to Venice while he was an infant. He has grown up here. He is well educated. He reads, writes, and speaks English, Italian, Spanish, and French with perfect facility, is a worshipper of art and thoroughly conversant with it, knows the history of Venice by heart, and never tires of talking of her illustrious career. He dresses better than any of us, I think, and is daintily polite. Negroes are deemed as good as white people in Venice, and so this man feels no desire to go back to his native land. His judgment is correct. I have had another shave. I was writing in our front room this afternoon, and trying hard to keep my attention on my work, and refrain from looking out upon the canal. I was resisting the soft influence of the climate, as well as I could, and endeavoring to overcome the desire to be indolent and happy. The boys sent for a barber. They asked me if I would be shaved. I reminded them of my tortures in Genoa, Milan, Como, of my declaration that I would suffer no more on Italian soil. I said, "'Not any for me, if you please.' I wrote on. The barber began on the doctor. I heard him say, "'Dan, this is the easiest shave I've had since we left the ship.' He said again presently, "'Why, Dan, a man could go to sleep with this man shaving him.' Dan took the chair, and then he said, "'Why, this is Titian. This is one of the old masters.' I wrote on. Directly Dan said, "'Doctor, it is perfect luxury. The ship's barber isn't anything to him.' My rough beard was distressing me beyond measure. The barber was rolling up his apparatus. The temptation was too strong. I said, "'Hold on, please. Shave me also.' I sat down in the chair and closed my eyes. 
The barber soaped my face, and then took his razor and gave me a rake that well-nigh threw me into convulsions. I jumped out of the chair. Dan and the doctor were wiping blood off their faces and laughing. I said it was a mean, disgraceful fraud. They said that the misery of this shave had gone so far beyond anything they had ever experienced before that they could not bear the idea of losing such a chance of hearing a cordial opinion from me on the subject. It was shameful! But there was no help for it. The skinning was begun and had to be finished. The tears flowed with every rake, and so did the fervent execrations. The barber grew confused, and brought blood every time. I think the boys enjoyed it better than anything they had seen or heard since they left home. We have seen the Campanile, and Byron's house, and Balbi's, the geographer, and the palaces of all the ancient dukes and doges of Venice, and we have seen their effeminate descendants airing their nobility in fashionable French attire in the grand square of St. Mark, and eating ices and drinking cheap wines, instead of wearing gallant coats of mail and destroying fleets and armies as their great ancestors did in the days of Venetian glory. We have seen no bravos with poisoned stilettos, no masks, no wild carnival, but we have seen the ancient pride of Venice, the grim bronze horses that figure in a thousand legends. Venice may well cherish them, for they are the only horses she ever had. It is said there are hundreds of people in this curious city who never have seen a living horse in their lives. It is entirely true, no doubt. And so, having satisfied ourselves, we depart to-morrow, and leave the venerable Queen of the Republics to summon her vanished ships, and marshal her shadowy armies, and know again, in dreams, the pride of her old renown. End of chapter 23 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter 24. Down Through Italy by Rail, Idling in Florence, Dante and Galileo, An Ungrateful City, Dazzling Generosity, Wonderful Mosaics, The Historical Arnaud, Lost Again, Found Again, But No Fatted Calf Ready, The Leaning Tower of Pisa, The Ancient Duomo, the old original first pendulum that ever swung, an enchanting echo, a new holy sepulchre, a relic of antiquity, a fallen republic, at Leghorn, at home again and satisfied on board the ship, our vessel an object of grave suspicion, Garibaldi visited, threats of quarantine. Some of the Quaker City's passengers had arrived in Venice from Switzerland and other lands before we left there, and others were expected every day. We heard of no casualties among them, and no sickness. We were a little fatigued with sightseeing, and so we rattled through a good deal of country by rail, without caring to stop. I took few notes. I find no mention of Bologna in my memorandum-book, except that we arrived there in good season but saw none of the sausages for which the place is so justly celebrated. Pistoia awoke but a passing interest. Florence pleased us for a while. I think we appreciated the great figure of David in the Grand Square, and the sculptured group they call the Rape of the Sabines. We wandered through the endless collections of paintings and statues of the Pitti and the Uffizi galleries, of course. I make that statement in self-defense. There, let it stop. I could not rest under the imputation that I visited Florence and did not traverse its weary miles of picture-galleries. 
we tried indolently to recollect something about the Guelphs and the Ghibellines and the other historical cutthroats whose quarrels and assassinations make up so large a share of Florentine history, but the subject was not attractive. We had been robbed of all the fine mountain scenery on our little journey by a system of railroading that had three miles of tunnel to a hundred yards of daylight, and we were not inclined to be sociable with Florence. We had seen the spot, outside the city somewhere, where these people had allowed the bones of Galileo to rest in unconsecrated ground for an age, because his great discovery that the world turned around was regarded as a damning heresy by the Church. And we know that long after the world had accepted his theory and raised his name high in the list of its great men, they had still let him rot there that we had lived to see his dust in honored sepulchre in the church of Santa Croce we owed to a society of literati, and not to Florence or her rulers. We saw Dante's tomb in that church, also, but we were glad to know that his body was not in it, that the ungrateful city that had exiled him and persecuted him would give much to have it there, but need not hope to ever secure that high honor to herself. Medicis are good enough for Florence. Let her plant Medicis, and build grand monuments over them, to testify how gratefully she was wont to lick the hand that scourged her. Magnanimous Florence! Her jewelry marts are filled with artists in mosaic. Florentine mosaics are the choicest in all the world. Florence loves to have that said. Florence is proud of it. Florence would foster this specialty of hers. She is grateful to the artists that bring to her this high credit and fill her coffers with foreign money, and so she encourages them with pensions. With pensions! Think of the lavishness of it! She knows that people who piece together the beautiful trifles die early, because the labor is so confining and so exhausting to hand and brain, and so she has decreed that all these people who reach the age of sixty shall have a pension after that. I have not heard that any of them have called for their dividends yet. One man did fight along till he was sixty, and started after his pension, but it appeared that there had been a mistake of a year in his family record, and so he gave it up and died. These artists will take particles of stone or glass no larger than a mustard-seed, and piece them together on a sleeve-button or a shirt-stud, so smoothly and with such nice adjustment of the delicate shades of color the pieces bear, as to form a pygmy rose with stem, thorn, leaves petals complete, and all as softly and as truthfully tinted as though nature had builded it herself. They will counterfeit a fly, or a high-toned bug, or the ruined coliseum, within the cramped circle of a breastpin, and do it so deftly and so neatly that any man might think a master painted it. I saw a little table in the great mosaic school in Florence, a little trifle of a center-table, whose top was made of some sort of precious polished stone, and in the stone was inlaid the figure of a flute, with bell-mouth and a mazy complication of keys. No painting in the world could have been softer or richer. No shading out of one tint into another could have been more perfect. No work of art of any kind could have been more faultless than this flute and yet to count the multitude of little fragments of stone of which they swore it was formed would bankrupt any man's arithmetic. I do not think one could have seen where two particles joined each other with eyes of ordinary shrewdness. Certainly we could detect no such blemish. This table-top cost the labor of one man for ten long years, so they said, and it was for sale for thirty-five thousand dollars. 
we went to the church of Santa Croce, from time to time, in Florence, to weep over the tombs of Michael Angelo, Raphael, and Machiavelli. I suppose they are buried there, but it may be that they reside elsewhere, and rent their tombs to other parties, such being the fashion in Italy. And between times we used to go back and stand on the bridges, and admire the Arno. It is popular to admire the Arno. It is a great historical creek, with four feet in the channel, and some scows floating around. It would be a very plausible river, if they would pump some water into it. They all call it a river, and they honestly think it is a river, do these dark and bloody Florentines. They even help out the delusion by building bridges over it. I do not see why they are too good to wade. How the fatigues and annoyances of travel fill one with bitter prejudices sometimes! I might enter Florence under happier auspices a uh, month hence, and find it all beautiful, all attractive. But I do not care to think of it now, at all, nor of its roomy shops filled to the ceiling with snowy marble and alabaster copies of all the celebrated sculptures in Europe, copies so enchanting to the eye that I wonder how they can really be shaped like the dingy, petrified nightmares they are the portraits of. I got lost in Florence at nine o'clock one night, and stayed lost in that labyrinth of narrow streets and long rows of vast buildings that look all alike, until toward three o'clock in the morning. It was a pleasant night, and at first there was a good many people abroad, and there were cheerful lights about. Later I grew accustomed to prowling about mysterious drifts and tunnels, and astonishing and interesting myself with coming around corners expecting to find the hotel staring at me in the face, and not finding it doing anything of the kind. Later still I felt tired. I soon felt remarkably tired. But there was no one abroad now, not even a policeman. I walked till I was out of all patience, and very hot and thirsty. At last, somewhere after one o'clock, I came unexpectedly to one of the city gates. I knew then that I was very far from the hotel. The soldiers thought I wanted to leave the city, and they sprang up and barred the way with their muskets. I said, Hotel d'Europe. It was all the Italian I knew, and I was not certain whether that was Italian or French. The soldiers looked stupidly at each other and at me, and shook their heads and took me into custody. I said I wanted to go home. They did not understand me. They took me into the guard-house and searched me, but they found no sedition on me. They found a small piece of soap—we carry soap with us now—and I made them a present of it, seeing that they regarded it as a curiosity. I continued to say, Hotel d'Europe, and they continued to shake their heads, until at last a young soldier nodding in the corner roused up and said something. He said he knew where the hotel was, I suppose, for the officer of the guard sent him away with me. We walked a hundred, or a hundred and fifty, miles, it appeared to me, and then he got lost. He turned this way and that, and finally gave it up and signified that he was going to spend the remainder of the morning trying to find the city gate again. At that moment it struck me that there was something familiar about the house over the way. It was the hotel. It was a happy thing for me that there happened to be a soldier there that knew even as much as he did, for they say that the policy of the government is to change the soldiery from one place to another constantly, and from country to city, so that they cannot become acquainted with the people, and grow lax in their duties, and enter into plots and conspiracies with friends. My experiences of Florence were chiefly unpleasant. I will change the subject. At Pisa we climbed up to the top of the strangest structure the world has any knowledge of—the Leaning Tower, 
As every one knows, it is in the neighborhood of one hundred and eighty feet high, and I beg to observe that one hundred and eighty feet reach to about the height of four ordinary three-story buildings piled one on top of the other, and is a very considerable altitude for a tower of uniform thickness to aspire to, even when it stands upright. Yet this one leans more than thirteen feet out of the perpendicular. It is seven hundred years old, but neither history or tradition say whether it was built as it is, purposely, or whether one of its sides has settled. There is no record that it ever stood straight up. It is built of marble. It is an airy and a beautiful structure, and each of its eight stories is encircled by fluted columns, some of marble and some of granite, with Corinthian capitals that were handsome when they were new. It is a bell-tower and in its top hangs a chime of ancient bells. The winding staircase within is dark, but one always knows which side of the tower he is on, because of his naturally gravitating from one side to the other of the staircase with a rise or dip of the tower. Some of the stone steps are foot-worn only on one end, others only on the other end, others only in the middle. The look down into the tower from the top is like looking down into a tilted well, a rope that hangs from the center of the top touches the wall before it reaches the bottom. Standing on the summit, one does not feel altogether comfortable when he looks down from the high side, but to crawl on your breast to the verge on the lower side and try to stretch your neck out far enough to see the base of the tower makes your flesh creep, and convinces you for a single moment in spite of all your philosophy that the building is falling. You handle yourself very carefully, all the time, under the silly impression that, if it is not falling, your trifling weight will start it unless you are particular not to bear down on it. The Duomo, close at hand, is one of the finest cathedrals in Europe. It is eight hundred years old. Its grandeur has outlived the high commercial prosperity and the political importance that made it a necessity, or rather a possibility. Surrounded by poverty, decay, and ruin, it conveys to us a more tangible impression of the former greatness of Pisa than books could give us. The baptistery, which is a few years older than the leaning tower, is a stately rotunda of huge dimensions, and was a costly structure. In it hangs the lamp whose measured swing suggested to Galileo the pendulum. It looked an insignificant thing to have conferred upon the world of science and mechanics such a mighty extension of their dominions as it has. Pondering, in its suggestive presence, I seem to see a crazy universe of swinging disks, the toiling children of this sedate parent. He appeared to have an intelligent expression about him, of knowing that he was not a lamp at all, that he was a pendulum, a pendulum disguised for prodigious and inscrutable purposes of his own deep devising, and not a common pendulum either, but the old original patriarchal pendulum, the Abraham pendulum of the world. This baptistery is endowed with the most pleasing echo of all the echoes we have read of. The guide sounded two sonorous notes, about a half-octave apart. The echo answered with the most enchanting, the most melodious, the richest blending of sweet sounds that one can imagine. It was like a long-drawn chord of a church-organ, infinitely softened by distance. I may be extravagant in this matter, but if this be the case my ear is to blame, not my pen. I am describing a memory, and one that will remain long with me. The peculiar devotional spirit of the olden time 
which placed a higher confidence in outward forms of worship than in the watchful guarding of the heart against sinful thoughts and the hands against sinful deeds, and which believed in the protecting virtues of inanimate objects made holy by contact with holy things, is illustrated in a striking manner in one of the cemeteries of Pisa. The tombs are set in soil brought in ships from the Holy Land ages ago. To be buried in such ground was regarded by the ancient Pisans as being more potent for salvation than many masses purchased of the Church and the vowing of many candles to the Virgin. Pisa is believed to be about three thousand years old. It was one of the twelve great cities of ancient Etruria, that commonwealth which has left so many monuments in testimony of its extraordinary advancement, and so little history of itself that is tangible and comprehensible. A Pisan antiquarian gave me an ancient tear-jug, which he averred was full four thousand years old. It was found among the ruins of one of the oldest of the Etruscan cities. He said it came from a tomb, and was used by some bereaved family in that remote age, when even the pyramids of Egypt were young, Damascus a village, Abraham a prattling infant, and ancient Troy not yet dreamt of, to receive the tears wept for some lost idol of a household. It spoke to us in a language of its own, and with a pathos more tender than any words might bring, its mute eloquence swept down the long roll of the centuries with its tale of a vacant chair, a familiar footstep missed from the threshold, a pleasant voice gone from the chorus, a vanished form, a tale which is always so new to us, so startling, so terrible, so benumbing to the senses, and behold how threadbare and old it is. No shrewdly worded history could have brought the myths and shadows of that old dreamy age before us clothed with human flesh and warmed with human sympathies so vividly as did this poor little unsentient vessel of pottery. Pisa was a republic in the Middle Ages, with a government of her own, armies and navies of her own, and a great commerce. She was a warlike power, and inscribed upon her banners many a brilliant fight with Genoese and Turks. It is said that the city once numbered a population of four hundred thousand, but her sceptre has passed from her grasp now, her ships and her armies are gone, her commerce is dead. Her battle-flags bear the mould and the dust of centuries, her marts are deserted, she has shrunken far within her crumbling walls, and her great population has diminished to twenty thousand souls. She has but one thing left to boast of, and that is not much, viz. She is the second city of Tuscany. We reached Leghorn in time to see all we wished to see of it long before the city gates were closed for the evening, and then came on board the ship. We felt as though we had been away from home an age. We never entirely appreciated before what a very pleasant den our stateroom is, nor how jolly it is to sit at dinner in one's own seat in one's own cabin and hold familiar conversation with friends in one's own language. Oh, the rare happiness of comprehending every single word that is said, and knowing that every word one says in return will be understood as well! We would talk ourselves to death, now, only there are only about ten passengers out of the sixty-five to talk to. The others are wandering, we hardly know where. We shall not go ashore in Leghorn. We are surfeited with Italian cities for the present, and much prefer to walk the familiar quarter-deck and view this one from a distance. 
The stupid magnates of this Leghorn government cannot understand that so large a steamer as ours could cross the broad Atlantic with no other purpose than to indulge a party of ladies and gentlemen in a pleasure excursion. It looks too improbable. It is suspicious, they think. Something more important must be hidden behind it all. They cannot understand it, and they scorn the evidence of the ship's papers. They have decided at last that we are a battalion of incendiary, bloodthirsty Garibaldians in disguise, and in all seriousness they have set a gunboat to watch the vessel night and day, with orders to close down on any revolutionary movement in a twinkling. Police boats are on patrol duty about us all the time, and it is as much as a sailor's liberty is worth to show himself in a red shirt. These policemen follow the executive officer's boat from shore to ship and from ship to shore, and watch his dark maneuvers with a vigilant eye. They will arrest him yet, unless he assumes an expression of countenance that shall have less of carnage, insurrection, and sedition in it. A visit paid in a friendly way to General Garibaldi yesterday, by cordial invitation, by some of our passengers, has gone far to confirm the dread suspicions the government harbors toward us. It is thought the friendly visit was only the cloak of a bloody conspiracy. These people draw near and watch us when we bathe in the sea from the ship's side. Do they think we are communing with a reserve force of rascals at the bottom? It is said that we shall probably be quarantined at Naples. Two or three of us prefer not to run the risk. Therefore, when we are rested, we propose to go in a French steamer to Civita, and from thence to Rome, and by rail to Naples. They do not quarantine the cars, no matter where they got their passengers from. End of chapter 24 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain Chapter 25 The Works of Bankruptcy Railway Grandeur How to Fill an Empty Treasury the sumptuousness of Mother Church, ecclesiastical splendor, magnificence and misery, general execration, more magnificence, a good word for the priests, Civita Vecchia the dismal, off for Rome. There are a good many things about this Italy which I do not understand, and more especially I cannot understand, how a bankrupt government can have such palatial railroad depots and such marvels of turnpikes. Why, these latter are as hard as adamant, as straight as a line, as smooth as a floor, and as white as snow. When it is too dark to see any other object, one can still see the white turnpikes of France and Italy, and they are clean enough to eat from without a tablecloth. And yet no tolls are charged. As for the railways, we have none like them. The cars slide as smoothly along as if they were on runners. The depots are vast palaces of cut marble with stately colonnades of the same royal stone traversing them from end to end, and with ample walls and ceilings richly decorated with frescoes. The lofty gateways are graced with statues, and the broad floors are all laid in polished flags of marble. These things win me more than Italy's hundred galleries of priceless art-treasures, because I can understand the one, and am not competent to appreciate the other. In the turnpikes, the railways, the depots, and the new boulevards of uniform houses in Florence and other cities here, I see the genius of Louis Napoleon, or rather, I see the works of that statesman imitated. 
but Louis has taken care that in France there shall be a foundation for these improvements—money. He has always the wherewithal to back up his projects. They strengthen France and never weaken her. Her material prosperity is genuine. But here the case is different. This country is bankrupt. There is no real foundation for these great works. The prosperity they would seem to indicate is a pretense. There is no money in the treasury, and so they enfeeble her instead of strengthening. Italy has achieved the dearest wish of her heart and become an independent state, and in so doing she has drawn an elephant in the political lottery. She has nothing to feed it on. Inexperienced in government, she plunged into all manner of useless expenditure, and swamped her treasury almost in a day. She squandered millions of francs on a navy which she did not need, and the first time she took her new toy into action she got it knocked higher than Gilderoy's kite, to use the language of the pilgrims. But it is an ill wind that blows nobody good. A year ago, when Italy saw utter ruin staring her in the face, and her greenbacks hardly worth the paper they were printed on, her Parliament ventured upon a coup de main that would have appalled the stoutest of her statesmen under less desperate circumstances. They, in a manner, confiscated the domains of the Church. This in priest-ridden Italy. This in a land which has groped in the midnight of priestly superstition for sixteen hundred years. It was a rare good fortune for Italy, the stress of weather that drove her to break from this prison-house. They do not call it confiscating the Church property. That would sound too harshly yet. But it amounts to that. There are thousands of churches in Italy, each with untold millions of treasures stored away in its closets, and each with its battalion of priests to be supported. And then there are the estates of the church, league on league of the richest lands and the noblest forests in all Italy, all yielding immense revenues to the church, and none paying a cent in taxes to the state. In some great districts the church owns all the property—lands, watercourses, woods, mills, and factories. They buy, they sell, they manufacture, and since they pay no taxes, who can hope to compete with them? Well, the government has seized all this in effect, and will yet seize it in rigid and unpoetical reality, no doubt. Something must be done to feed a starving treasury, and there is no other resource in all Italy—none but the riches of the church. So the government intends to take to itself a great portion of the revenues arising from priestly farms, factories, etc., and also intends to take possession of the churches, and carry them on, after its own fashion, and upon its own responsibility. In a few instances it will leave the establishments of great pet churches undisturbed, but in all others only a handful of priests will be retained to preach and pray. A few will be pensioned, and the balance turned adrift. Pray glance at some of these churches and their embellishments, and see whether the government is doing a righteous thing or not. In Venice, to-day, a city of a hundred thousand inhabitants, there are twelve hundred priests. Heaven only knows how many there were before the Parliament reduced their numbers. There was the great Jesuit church. Under the old regime it required sixty priests to engineer it. The government does it with five now, and the others are discharged from service. All about that church wretchedness and poverty abound. At its door a dozen hats and bonnets were doffed to us, as many heads were humbly bowed, and as many hands extended, appealing for pennies, appealing with foreign words we could not understand, but appealing mutely, with sad eyes, 
and sunken cheeks, and ragged raiment, that no words were needed to translate. Then we passed within the great doors, and it seemed that the riches of the world were before us. Huge columns carved out of single masses of marble, and inlaid from top to bottom with a hundred intricate figures wrought in costly verde antique, pulpits of the same rich materials, whose draperies hung down in many a pictured fold, the stony fabric counterfeiting the delicate work of the loom, the grand altar brilliant with polished facings and balustrades of oriental agate, jasper, verde antique, and other precious stones, whose names even we seldom hear, and slabs of priceless lapis lazuli, lavished everywhere as recklessly as if the church had owned a quarry of it. In the midst of all this magnificence the solid gold and silver furniture of the altar seemed cheap and trivial. Even the floors and ceilings cost a princely fortune. Now, where is the use of allowing all those riches to lie idle, while half of that community hardly know from day to day how they are going to keep body and soul together? And where is the wisdom in permitting hundreds upon hundreds of millions of francs to be locked up in useless trumpery of churches all over Italy, and the people ground to death with taxation to uphold a perishing government? As far as I can see, Italy, for fifteen hundred years, has turned all her energies, all her finances, and all her industry to the building up of a vast array of wonderful church edifices, and starving half her citizens to accomplish it. She is to-day one vast museum of magnificence and misery. All the churches in an ordinary American city, put together, could hardly buy the jeweled frippery in one of her hundred cathedrals and for every beggar in America, Italy can show a hundred, and rags and vermin to match. It is the wretchedest, princeliest land on earth. Look at the Grand Duomo of Florence, a vast pile that has been sapping the purses of her citizens for five hundred years, and is not nearly finished yet. Like all other men, I fell down and worshipped it, but when the filthy beggars swarmed around me, the contrast was too striking, too suggestive, and I said, O oh, sons of classic Italy, is the spirit of enterprise, of self-reliance, of noble endeavor, utterly dead within ye? Curse your indolent worthlessness! Why don't you rob your church? Three hundred happy, comfortable priests are employed in that cathedral, and now that my temper is up, I may as well go on and abuse everybody I can think of. They have a grand mausoleum in Florence, which they built to bury our Lord and Saviour and the Medici family in. It sounds blasphemous, but it is true, and here they act blasphemy. The dead and damned Medicis, who cruelly tyrannized over Florence, and were her curse for over two hundred years, are salted away in a circle of costly vaults, and in their midst the holy sepulchre was to have been set up. The expedition sent to Jerusalem to seize it got into trouble, and could not accomplish the burglary, and so the center of the mausoleum is vacant now. They say the entire mausoleum was intended for the Holy Sepulchre, and was only turned into a family burying-place after the Jerusalem expedition failed. But you will excuse me. Some of those Medicis would have smuggled themselves in, sure. What they had not the effrontery to do was not worth doing. Why, they had their trivial, forgotten exploits on land and sea pictured out in grand frescoes, as did also the ancient doges of Venice with the Saviour and the Virgin throwing bouquets to them out of the clouds, and the Deity Himself applauding from His throne in heaven. And who painted these things? Why, Titian, Tintoretto, Paul Veronesi, Raphael, none other than the world's idols, the old masters. 
Andrea del Sarto glorified his princes in pictures that must save them forever from the oblivion they merited, and they let him starve. Served him right. Raphael pictured such infernal villains as Catherine and Marie de Medici seated in heaven and conversing familiarly with the Virgin Mary and the angels, to say nothing of higher personages. And yet my friends abuse me because I am a little prejudiced against the old masters, because I fail sometimes to see the beauty that is in their productions. I cannot help but see it, now and then, but I keep on protesting against the groveling spirit that could persuade those masters to prostitute their noble talents to the adulation of such monsters as the French, Venetian, and Florentine princes of two and three hundred years ago, all the same. I am told that the old masters had to do these shameful things for bread, the princes and potentates being the only patrons of art. If a grandly gifted man may drag his pride and his manhood in the dirt for bread, rather than starve with the nobility that is in him untainted, the excuse is a valid one. It would excuse theft in Washingtons and Wellingtons, and unchastity in women as well. But somehow I cannot keep that Medici mausoleum out of my memory. It is as large as a church, its pavement is rich enough for the pavement of a king's palace, its great dome is gorgeous with frescoes, its walls are made of, what, marble, plaster, wood, paper? No, red porphyry, verde antique, jasper, oriental agate, alabaster, mother-of-pearl, chalcedony, red coral, lapis lazuli, all the vast walls are made wholly of these precious stones, worked in, and in, and in together in elaborate patterns and figures, and polished till they glow like great mirrors, with the pictured splendors reflected from the dome overhead. And before a statue of one of those dead Medicis reposes a crown that blazes with diamonds and emeralds enough to buy a ship of the line, almost. These are the things the government has its evil eye upon, and a happy thing it will be for Italy when they melt away in the public treasury. And now, however, another beggar approaches, I will go out and destroy him, and then come back and write another chapter of vituperation. Having eaten the friendless orphan, having driven away his comrades, having grown calm and reflective at length, I now feel in a kindlier mood. I feel that after talking so freely about the priests and the churches, justice demands that if I know anything good about either, I ought to say it. I have heard of many things that redound to the credit of the priesthood, but the most notable matter that occurs to me now is the devotion one of the mendicant orders showed during the prevalence of the cholera last year. I speak of the Dominican friars, men who wear a coarse, heavy brown robe and a cowl in this hot climate, and go barefoot. They live on alms altogether, I believe. They must unquestionably love their religion to suffer so much for it. When the cholera was raging in Naples, when the people were dying by hundreds and hundreds every day, when every concern for the public welfare was swallowed up in selfish private interest, and every citizen made the taking care of himself his sole object, these men banded themselves together and went about nursing the sick and burying the dead. Their noble efforts cost many of them their lives. They laid them down cheerfully, and well they might creeds mathematically precise and hair-splitting niceties of doctrine are absolutely necessary for the salvation of some kinds of souls, but surely the charity, the purity, the unselfishness that are in the hearts of men like these would save their souls though they were bankrupt in the true religion, which is ours. 
One of these fat, barefooted rascals came here to Civitavecchia with us in the little French steamer. There were only half a dozen of us in the cabin. He belonged in the steerage. He was the life of the ship, the bloody-minded son of the Inquisition. He and the leader of the marine band of a French man-of-war played on the piano and sang opera turnabout. They sang duets together. They rigged impromptu theatrical costumes and gave us extravagant farces and pantomimes. We got along first-rate with the friar, and were excessively conversational, albeit he could not understand what we said, and certainly he never uttered a word that we could guess the meaning of. The Civitavecchia is the finest nest of dirt, vermin, and ignorance that we found yet, except that African perdition they call Tangier, which is just like it. The people here live in alleys two yards wide, which have a smell about them which is peculiar, but not entertaining. It is well the alleys are not wider, because they hold as much smell now as a person can stand, and, of course, if they were wider they would hold more, and then the people would die. These alleys are paved with stone, and carpeted with deceased cats, and decayed rags, and decomposed vegetable tops, and remnants of old boots, all soaked with dishwater, and the people sit around on stools and enjoy it. They are indolent, as a general thing, and yet have few pastimes. They work two or three hours at a time, but not hard, and then they knock off and catch flies. This does not require any talent, because they only have to grab. If they do not get the one they are after, they get another. It is all the same to them. They have no partialities. Whichever one they get is the one they want. They have other kinds of insects, but it does not make them arrogant. They are very quiet, unpretending people. They have more of these kind of things than other communities, but they do not boast. They are very uncleanly, these people, in face, in person, and dress. When they see anybody with a clean shirt on, it rouses their scorn. The women wash clothes half the day, at the public tanks in the streets, but they are probably somebody else's. Or maybe they keep one set to wear and another to wash, because they never put on any that have ever been washed. When they get done washing, they sit in the alleys and nurse their cubs. They nurse one ash-cat at a time, and the others scratch their backs against the doorpost and are happy. All this country belongs to the Papal States. They do not appear to have any schools here, and only one billiard-table. Their education is at a very low stage. One portion of the men go into the military, another into the priesthood, and the rest into the shoemaking business. They keep up the passport system here, but so they do in Turkey. This shows that the Papal States are as far advanced as Turkey. This fact will be alone sufficient to silence the tongues of malignant calumniators. I had to get my passport vised for Rome in Florence, and then they would not let me come ashore here until a policeman had examined it on the wharf and sent me a permit. They did not even dare to let me take my passport in my hands for twelve hours I looked so formidable. They judged it best to let me cool down. They thought I wanted to take the town, likely. Little did they know me. I wouldn't have it. They examined my baggage at the depot. They took one of my ablest jokes and read it over carefully twice, and then read it backwards, but it was too deep for them. They passed it around, and everybody speculated on it a while, but it mastered them all. It was no common joke. At length a veteran officer spelled it over deliberately, and shook his head three or four times, and said that, in his opinion, it was seditious. That was the first time I felt alarmed. I immediately said I would explain the document, and they crowded around. And so I explained, and explained, and explained. 
and they took notes of all I said, but the more I explained, the more they could not understand it, and when they desisted at last, I could not even understand it myself. They said they believed it was an incendiary document, leveled at the government. I declared solemnly that it was not, but they only shook their heads and would not be satisfied. Then they consulted a good while, and finally they confiscated it. I was very sorry for this, because I had worked a long time on that joke, and took a good deal of pride in it, and now I suppose I shall never see it any more. I suppose it will be sent up and filed away among the criminal archives of Rome, and will always be regarded as a mysterious infernal machine which would have blown up like a mine and scattered the good Pope all around, but for a miraculous providential interference. And I suppose that all the time I am in Rome the police will dog me about from place to place because they think I am a dangerous character. It is fearfully hot in Civitavecchia. The streets are made very narrow, and the houses built very solid and heavy and high, as a protection against the heat. This is the first Italian town I have seen which does not appear to have a patron saint. I suppose no saint but the one that went up in the chariot of fire could stand the climate. There is nothing here to see. They have not even a cathedral, with eleven tons of solid silver archbishops in the back room, and they do not show you any mouldy buildings that are seven thousand years old nor any smoke-dried old fire-screens which are chef d'oeuvre of the Rubens, or Simpson, or Titian, or Ferguson, or any of those parties. And they haven't any bottled fragments of saints, and not even a nail from the true cross. We are going to Rome. There is nothing to see here. End of chapter 25 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain, Chapter Twenty Six. The Modern Roman on His Travels. The Grandeur of St. Peter's. Holy Relics. Grand View from the Dome. The Holy Inquisition. Interesting Old Monkish Frauds. The Ruined Colosseum. The Colosseum in the Days of Its Prime. Ancient Playbill of a Coliseum Performance, A Roman Newspaper Criticism, Seventeen Hundred Years Old. What is it that confers the noblest delight? What is that which swells a man's breast with pride above that which any other experience can bring to him? Discovery. To know that you are walking where none others have walked, that you are beholding what human eye has not seen before that you are breathing a virgin atmosphere, to give birth to an idea, to discover a great thought, an intellectual nugget, right under the dust of a field, that many a brain plough had gone over before, to find a new planet, to invent a new hinge, to find the way to make the lightnings carry your messages, to be the first, that is the idea, to do something, say something, see something, before any body else, these are the things that confer a pleasure compared with which other pleasures are tame and commonplace, other ecstasies cheap and trivial. Morse, with his first message, brought by his servant, the lightning. Fulton, in that long-drawn century of suspense, when he placed his hand upon the throttle-valve, and lo, the steamboat moved. Jenner, when his patient with the cow's virus in his blood, walked through the smallpox hospitals unscathed. How, 
when the idea shot through his brain that for a hundred and twenty generations the eye had been bored through the wrong end of the needle, the nameless lord of art who laid down his chisel in some old age that is forgotten now, and gloated upon the finished Laocoon. Daguerre, when he commanded the sun riding in the zenith to print the landscape upon his insignificant silvered plate, and he obeyed. Columbus, in the Pinta's shrouds, when he swung his hat above a fabled sea, and gazed abroad upon an unknown world. These are the men who have really lived, who have actually comprehended what pleasure is, who have crowded long lifetimes of ecstasy into a single moment. What is there in Rome for me to see that others have not seen before me? What is there for me to touch that others have not touched? What is there for me to feel, to learn, to hear, to know, that shall thrill me before it pass to others? What can I discover? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. One charm of travel dies here, but if I were only a Roman, if, added to my own, I could be gifted with modern Roman sloth, modern Roman superstition, and modern Roman boundlessness of ignorance, what bewildering worlds of unsuspected wonders I would discover! Ah, if I were only a habitat of the Campania Five, and twenty miles from Rome, then I would travel! I would go to America, and see, and learn, and return to the Campania, and stand before my countrymen an illustrious discoverer. I would say, I saw there a country which has no overshadowing Mother Church, and yet the people survive. I saw a government which never was protected by foreign soldiers at a cost greater than that required to carry on the government itself. I saw common men and common women who could read. I even saw small children of common country people reading from books. If I dared think you would believe it, I would say they could write also. In the cities I saw people drinking a delicious beverage made of chalk and water, but never once saw goats driven through their Broadway, or their Pennsylvania Avenue, or their Montgomery Street, and milked at the door of the houses. I saw real glass windows in the houses of even the commonest people. Some of the houses are not of stone, nor yet of bricks. I solemnly swear they are made of wood. Houses there will take fire and burn sometimes. Actually, they burn entirely down, and not leave a single vestige behind. I could state that for a truth upon my deathbed, and, as a proof that the circumstance is not rare, I aver that they have a thing which they call a fire-engine, which vomits forth great streams of water, and is kept always in readiness, by night and by day, to rush to houses that are burning. You would think one engine would be sufficient, but some great cities have a hundred. They keep men hired, and pay them by the month to do nothing but put out fires. For a certain sum of money other men will ensure that your house shall not burn down, and, if it burns, they will pay you for it. There are hundreds and thousands of schools, and anybody may go and learn to be wise, like a priest. In that singular country, if a rich man dies a sinner, he is damned. He cannot buy salvation with money for masses. There is really not much use in being rich there, not much use as far as the other world is concerned, but much, very much use as concerns this, because there, if a man be rich, he is very greatly honored, and can become a legislator, a governor, a general, a senator, no matter how ignorant an ass he is. 
just as in our beloved Italy the nobles hold all the great places, even though sometimes they are born noble idiots. There, if a man be rich, they give him costly presents, they ask him to feasts, they invite him to drink complicated beverages. But if he be poor and in debt, they require him to do that which they term to settle. The women put on a different dress almost every day. The dress is usually fine, but absurd in shape. The very shape and fashion of it changes twice in a hundred years, and did I but covet to be called an extravagant falsifier, I would say it changed even oftener. Hair does not grow upon the American women's heads. It is made for them by cunning workmen in the shops, and is curled and frizzled into scandalous and ungodly forms. Some persons wear eyes of glass, which they see through with facility, perhaps, else they would not use them and in the mouths of some are teeth made by the sacrilegious hand of man. The dress of the men is laughably grotesque. They carry no musket in ordinary life, nor no long-pointed pole. They wear no wide green-lined cloak. They wear no peaked black felt hat, no leathern gaiters reaching to the knee, no goatskin breeches with the hair side out, no hob-nailed shoes, no prodigious spurs. They wear a conical hat termed a nail-cag a coat of saddest black, a shirt which shows dirt so easily that it has to be changed every month, and is very troublesome. Things called pantaloons, which are held up by shoulder-straps, and on their feet they wear boots, which are ridiculous in pattern and can stand nowhere. Yet, dressed in this fantastic garb, these people laughed at my costume. In that country, books are so common that it is really no curiosity to see one. Newspapers also. They have a great machine which prints such things by thousands every hour. I saw common men there, men who were neither priests nor princes, who yet absolutely owned the land they tilled. It was not rented from the church, nor from the nobles. I am ready to take my oath of this. In that country you might fall from a third-story window several times, and not mash either a soldier or a priest. The scarcity of such people is astonishing. In the cities you will see a dozen civilians for every soldier, and as many for every priest or preacher. Jews there are treated just like human beings instead of dogs. They can work at any business they please. They can sell brand-new goods if they want to. They can keep drug-stores. They can practice medicine among Christians. They can even shake hands with Christians if they choose. They can associate with them just the same as one human being does with another human being. They don't have to stay shut up in one corner of the towns. They can live in any part of the town they like best. It is said they even have the privilege of buying land and houses, and owning them themselves, though I doubt that myself. They never have had to run races naked through the public streets, against jackasses, to please the people in carnival time. There they never have been driven by the soldiers into a church every Sunday for hundreds of years to hear themselves and their religion especially and particularly cursed. At this very day, in that curious country, a Jew is allowed to vote, hold office, yea, get up on a rostrum in the public street, and express his opinion of the government, if the government don't suit him. Ah, it is wonderful! The common people there know a great deal. They even have the effrontery to complain if they are not properly governed, and to take hold and help conduct the government themselves. 
if they had laws like ours which give one dollar of every three a crop produces to the government for taxes they would have that law altered instead of paying thirty-three dollars in taxes out of every one hundred they receive they complain if they have to pay seven they are curious people they do not know when they are well off mendicant priests do not prowl among them with baskets begging for the church and eating up their substance one hardly ever sees a minister of the gospel going around there in his bare feet with a basket begging for subsistence in that country the preachers are not like our mendicant orders of friars they have two or three suits of clothing and they wash sometimes in that land are mountains far higher than the alban mountains the vast roman campagna a hundred miles long and full forty broad is really small compared to the united states of america the tiber that celebrated river of ours which stretches its mighty course almost two hundred miles and which a lad can scarcely throw a stone across at rome is not so long nor yet so wide as the american mississippi nor yet the ohio nor even the hudson in america the people are absolutely wiser and know much more than their grandfathers did they do not plough with a sharpened stick nor yet with a three-cornered block of wood that merely scratches the top of the ground we do that because our fathers did three thousand years ago i suppose but those people have no holy reverence for their ancestors they plough with a plough that is a sharp curved blade of iron and it cuts into the earth full five inches and this is not all they cut their grain with a horrid machine that mows down whole fields in a day if i dared i would say that sometimes they use a blasphemous plough that works by fire and vapour and tears up an acre of ground in a single hour but but i see by your looks that you do not believe the things i am telling you alas my character is ruined and i am a branded speaker of untruths of course we have been to the monster church of st peter frequently i knew its dimensions i knew it was a prodigious structure i knew it was just about the length of the capitol at washington say seven hundred and thirty feet i knew it was three hundred and sixty-four feet wide and consequently wider than the capitol i knew that the cross on the top of the dome of the church was four hundred and thirty-eight feet above the ground and therefore about a hundred or maybe a hundred and twenty-five feet higher than the dome of the capitol thus i had one gauge i wished to come as near forming a correct idea of how it was going to look as possible i had a curiosity to see how much i would err i erred considerably st peter's did not look nearly so large as the capitol and certainly not a twentieth part as beautiful from the outside when we reached the door and stood fairly within the church it was impossible to comprehend that it was a very large building i had to cipher a comprehension of it i had to ransack my memory for some more similes st peter's is bulky its height and size would represent two of the washington capitol set one on top of the other if the capitol were wider or two blocks or two blocks and a half of ordinary buildings set one on top of the other st peter's was that large but it could and would not look so the trouble was that everything in it and about it was on such a scale of uniform vastness that there were no contrasts to judge by none but the people and i had not noticed them they were insects the statues of children holding vases of holy water were immense according to the tables of figures 
but so was everything else around them. The mosaic pictures in the dome were huge, and were made of thousands and thousands of cubes of glass, as large as the end of my little finger, but those pictures looked smooth and gaudy of color, and in good proportion to the dome. Evidently they would not answer to measure by. Away down toward the far end of the church, I thought it was really clear at the far end, but discovered afterward that it was in the center under the dome stood the thing they call the baldacchino, a great bronze pyramidal framework like that which upholds a mosquito-bar. It only looked like a considerably magnified bedstead, nothing more, yet I knew it was a good deal more than half as high as Niagara Falls. It was overshadowed by a dome so mighty that its own height was snubbed. The four great square piers, or pillars, that stand equidistant from each other in the church, and support the roof, I could not work up to their real dimensions by any method of comparison. I knew that the faces of each were about the width of a very large dwelling-house front, fifty or sixty feet, and that they were twice as high as an ordinary three-story dwelling. But still they looked small. I tried all the different ways I could think of to compel myself to understand how large St. Peter's was, but with small success. The mosaic portrait of an apostle who was writing with a pen six feet long seemed only an ordinary apostle. But the people attracted my attention after a while. To stand in the door of St. Peter's and look at men down toward its further extremity, two blocks away, has a diminishing effect on them surrounded by the prodigious pictures and statues, and lost in the vast spaces, they look very much smaller than they would if they stood two blocks away in the open air. I averaged a man as he passed me, and watched him as he drifted far down by the Baldacchino and beyond, watched him dwindle to an insignificant schoolboy, and then, in the midst of the silent throng of human pygmies gliding about him, I lost him. The church had lately been decorated, on the occasion of a great ceremony in honor of St. Peter, and men were engaged now in removing the flowers and gilt paper from the walls and pillars. As no ladders could reach the great heights, the men swung themselves down from the balustrades and the capitals of pilasters by ropes to do this work. The upper gallery which encircles the inner sweep of the dome is two hundred and forty feet above the ground of the church. Very few steeples in America could reach up to it. Visitors always go up there to look down into the church, because one gets the best idea of some of the heights and distances from that point. While we stood on the floor, one of the workmen swung loose from that gallery at the end of a long rope. I had not supposed before that a man could look so much like a spider. He was insignificant in size, and his rope seemed only a thread. Seeing that he took up so little space, I could believe the story, then, that ten thousand troops went to St. Peter's once, to hear a mass, and their commanding officer came afterward, and not finding them, supposed they had not yet arrived. But they were in the church, nevertheless. They were in one of the transepts. Nearly fifty thousand persons assembled in St. Peter's to hear the publishing of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. It is estimated that the floor of the church affords standing room for, for a large number of people. I have forgotten the exact figures, but it is no matter. It is near enough. They have twelve small pillars in St. Peter's, which came from Solomon's temple. They have also, which was far more interesting to me, a piece of the true cross, and some nails, and a part of the crown of thorns. Of course, we ascended to the summit of the dome, and, of course, we also went up into the gilt 
copper ball, which is above it. There was room there for a dozen persons, with a little crowding, and it was as close and hot as an oven. Some of those people, who are so fond of writing their names in prominent places, had been there before us—a million or two, I should think. From the dome of St. Peter's one can see every notable object in Rome, from the castle of St. Angelo to the Colosseum. He can discern the seven hills upon which Rome is built. He can see the Tiber, and the locality of the bridge which Horatius kept in the brave days of old, when Lars Porsena attempted to cross it with his invading host. He can see the spot where the Horatii and the Curatii fought their famous battle. He can see the broad green Campania, stretching away toward the mountains, with its scattered arches and broken aqueducts of the olden time, so picturesque in their gray ruin, and so daintily festooned with vines. He can see the Alban mountains, the Apennines, the Sabine hills, and the blue Mediterranean. He can see a panorama that is varied, extensive, beautiful to the eye, and more illustrious in history than any other in Europe. About his feet is spread the remnant of a city that once had a population of four million souls, and among its massed edifices stand the ruins of temples, columns, and triumphal arches that knew the Caesars and the noonday of Roman splendor and close by them, in unimpaired strength, is a drain of arched and heavy masonry that belonged to that older city which stood here before Romulus and Remus were born or Rome thought of. The Appian Way is here yet, and looking much as it did, perhaps, when the triumphal processions of the emperors moved over it in other days, bringing fettered princes from the confines of the earth. We cannot see the long array of chariots and mail-clad men laden with the spoils of conquest, but we can imagine the pageant, after a fashion. We look out upon many objects of interest from the dome of St. Peter's, and last of all, almost at our feet, our eyes rest upon the building which was once the Inquisition. How times changed between the older ages and the new! Some seventeen or eighteen centuries ago the ignorant men of Rome were wont to put Christians in the arena of the Colosseum yonder, and turn the wild beasts in upon them for a show. It was for a lesson as well. It was to teach the people to abhor and fear the new doctrine the followers of Christ were teaching. The beasts tore the victims limb from limb, and made poor mangled corpses of them in the twinkling of an eye. But when the Christians came into power, when the Holy Mother Church became mistress of the barbarians, she taught them the error of their ways by no such means. No, she put them in this pleasant inquisition, and pointed to the blessed Redeemer who was so gentle and so merciful toward all men, and they urged the barbarians to love him. And they did all they could to persuade them to love and honor him, first by twisting their thumbs out of joint with a screw, then by snipping their flesh with pincers, red-hot ones, because they were the most comfortable in cold weather, then by skinning them alive a little, and finally by roasting them in public. They always convinced those barbarians, the true religion properly administered, as the good mother church used to administer it, is very, very soothing. It is wonderfully persuasive also. There is a great difference between feeding parties to wild beasts, and stirring up their finer feelings in an inquisition. One is the system of degraded barbarians, the other of enlightened, civilized people. It is a great pity the playful inquisition is no more. I prefer not to describe St. Peter's. It has been done before. The ashes of Peter, the disciple of the Saviour, repose in a crypt under the Baldacchino. 
we stood reverently in that place, so did we also in the Mamertine prison, where he was confined, where he converted the soldiers, and where tradition says he caused a spring of water to flow in order that he might baptize them. But when they showed us the print of St. Peter's face in the hard stone of the prison wall, and said he made that by falling up against it, we doubted. And when also the monk at the church of St. Sebastian showed us a paving-stone with two great footprints in it, and said that Peter's feet made those, we lacked confidence again. Such things do not impress one. The monk said that angels came and liberated Peter from prison by night, and he started away from Rome by the Appian Way. The Saviour met him and told him to go back, which he did. Peter left those footprints in the stone upon which he stood at the time. It was not stated how it was ever discovered whose footprints they were, seeing the interview occurred secretly and at night. The print of the face in the prison was that of a man of common size. The footprints were those of a man ten or twelve feet high. The discrepancy confirmed our unbelief. We necessarily visited the Forum, where Caesar was assassinated, and also the Tarpeian Rock. We saw the dying gladiator at the Capitol, and I think that even we appreciated that wonder of art, as much, perhaps, as we did that fearful story wrought in marble in the Vatican, the Laocoon, and then the Colosseum. Everybody knows the picture of the Colosseum. Everybody recognizes at once that looped and windowed bandbox with a side bitten out. Being rather isolated, it shows to better advantage than any of the other monuments of ancient Rome. Even the beautiful Pantheon, whose pagan altars uphold the cross now, and whose Venus, tricked out in consecrated gimcracks, does reluctant duty as a Virgin Mary to-day, is built about with shabby houses, and its stateliness sadly marred. But the monarch of all European ruins, the Colosseum, maintains that reserve and that royal seclusion which is proper to majesty. Weeds and flowers spring from its massy arches and its circling seats, and vines hang their fringes from its lofty walls. An impressive silence broods over the monstrous structure where such multitudes of men and women were wont to assemble in other days. The butterflies have taken the places of the queens of fashion and beauty of eighteen centuries ago, and the lizards sun themselves in the sacred seat of the emperor. More vividly than all the written histories, the Colosseum tells the story of Rome's grandeur and Rome's decay. It is the worthiest type of both that exists. Moving about the Rome of to-day, we might find it hard to believe in her old magnificence and her millions of population, but with this stubborn evidence before us, that she was obliged to have a theatre with sitting-room for eighty thousand persons, and standing-room for twenty thousand more, to accommodate such of her citizens as required amusement, we find belief less difficult. The Colosseum is over one thousand six hundred feet long, seven hundred and fifty wide, and one hundred and sixty-five high. Its shape is oval. In America we make convicts useful at the same time that we punish them for their crimes. We farm them out and compel them to earn money for the state by making barrels and building roads. Thus we combine business with retribution, and all things are lovely. But in ancient Rome they combined religious duty with pleasure. Since it was necessary that the new sect called Christians should be exterminated, the people judged it wise to make this work profitable to the state at the same time, and entertaining to the public. 
In addition to the gladiatorial combats and other shows, they sometimes threw members of the hated sect into the arena of the Colosseum and turned wild beasts in upon them. It is estimated that seventy thousand Christians suffered martyrdom in this place. This has made the Colosseum holy ground in the eyes of the followers of the Saviour, and well it might, for if the chain that bound a saint, and the footprints a saint has left upon a stone he chanced to stand upon, be holy, surely the spot where a man gave up his life for his faith is holy. Seventeen or eighteen centuries ago this Colosseum was the theatre of Rome, and Rome was mistress of the world. Splendid pageants were exhibited here, in presence of the Emperor, the great ministers of state, the nobles, and vast audiences of citizens of smaller consequence. Gladiators fought with gladiators, and at times with warrior prisoners from many a distant land. It was the theatre of Rome, of the world, and the man of fashion who could not let fall in a casual and unintentional manner something about my private box at the Colosseum could not move in the first circles. When the clothing-store merchant wished to consume the corner grocery-man with envy, he bought secured seats in the front row, and let the thing be known. When the irresistible dry-goods clerk wished to blight and destroy, according to his native instinct, he got himself up regardless of expense, and took some other fellow's young lady to the Colosseum, and then accented the affront by cramming her with ice-cream between the acts or by approaching the cage and stirring up the martyrs with his whalebone cane for her edification. The Roman swell was in his true element only when he stood up against a pillar and fingered his moustache unconscious of the ladies, when he viewed the bloody combats through an opera-glass two inches long, when he excited the envy of provincials by criticisms which showed that he had been to the Colosseum many and many a time and was long ago over the novelty of it when he turned away with a yawn at last, and said, He, a star, handles his sword like an apprentice brigand. He'll do for the country, maybe, but he don't answer for the metropolis. Glad was the contraband that had a seat in the pit at the Saturday matinee, and happy the Roman street-boy who ate his peanuts and guyed the gladiators from the dizzy gallery. For me was reserved the high honour of discovering among the rubbish of the ruined Colosseum the only playbill of that establishment now extant. There was a suggestive smell of mint-drops about it still. A corner of it had evidently been chewed. And on the margin, in choice Latin, these words were written in a delicate female hand. "'Meet me on the Tarpian Rock to-morrow evening, dear, at sharp seven. Mother will be absent on a visit to her friends in the Sabine Hills. Claudia.' Ah, where is that lucky youth to-day, and where the little hand that wrote those dainty lines? Dust and ashes these seventeen hundred years. Thus reads the bill. Roman Colosseum. Unparalleled attraction. New properties. New lions. New gladiators. Engagement of the renowned Marcus Marcellus Valerian, for six nights only. The management begged leave to offer to the public an entertainment surpassing in magnificence anything that has heretofore been attempted on any stage. No expense has been spared to make the opening season one which will be worthy the generous patronage which the management feels sure will crown their efforts. The management begged leave to state that they have succeeded in securing the services of a galaxy of talent, such as has not been beheld in Rome before. 
The performance will commence this evening with a grand broadsword combat between two young and promising amateurs and a celebrated Parthian gladiator who has just arrived a prisoner from the camp of Virus. This will be followed by a grand moral battle-axe engagement between the renowned Valerian, with one hand tied behind him, and two gigantic savages from Britain, after which the renowned Valerian, if he survives, will fight with the broadsword, left-handed, against six sophomores and a freshman from the gladiatorial college. A long series of brilliant engagements will follow, in which the finest talent of the empire will take part, after which the celebrated infant prodigy known as the Young Achilles will engage four tiger whelps in combat, armed with no other weapon than his little spear, the whole to conclude with a chaste and elegant general slaughter, in which thirteen African lions and twenty-two barbarian prisoners will war with each other until all are exterminated. Box office now open. Dress circle one dollar, children and servants half price. An efficient police force will be on hand to preserve order and keep the wild beasts from leaping the railings and discommoding the audience. Doors open at seven. Performance begins at eight. Positively no free list. Diodorus Job Press. It was as singular as it was gratifying that I was also so fortunate as to find among the rubbish of the arena a stained and mutilated copy of the Roman daily battle-axe containing a critique upon this very performance. It comes to hand too late by many centuries to rank as news, and therefore I translate and publish it simply to show how very little the general style and phraseology of dramatic criticism has altered in the ages that have dragged their slow length along since the carriers laid this one damp and fresh before their Roman patrons. THE OPENING SEASON Coliseum, Notwithstanding the inclemency of the weather, Quite a respectable number of the rank and fashion of the city assembled last night, to witness the debut upon metropolitan boards of the young tragedian who has of late been winning such golden opinions in the amphitheatres of the provinces. Some sixty thousand persons were present, and, but for the fact that the streets were almost impassable, it is fair to presume that the house would have been full. His august majesty, the Emperor Aurelius, occupied the imperial box, and was the signature of all eyes. Many illustrious nobles and generals of the empire graced the occasion with their presence, and not the least among them was the young patrician lieutenant whose laurels, one in the ranks of the thundering legion, are still so green upon his brow. The cheer which greeted his entrance was heard beyond the Tiber. The late repairs and decorations add both to the comeliness and comfort of the Colosseum. The new cushions are a great improvement upon the hard marble seats we have been so long accustomed to. The present management deserve well of the public. They have restored to the Colosseum the gilding, the rich upholstery, and the uniform magnificence which old Colosseum frequenters tell us Rome was so proud of fifty years ago. The opening scene last night the broadsword combat between two young amateurs, and a famous Parthian gladiator who was sent here a prisoner, was very fine. The elder of the two young gentlemen handled his weapon with a grace that marked the possession of extraordinary talent. His feint of thrusting, followed instantly by a happily delivered blow which unhelmeted the Parthian, was received with hearty applause. He was not thoroughly up in the backhanded stroke but it was very gratifying to his numerous friends to know that, in time, practice would have overcome this defect. However, he was killed. 
His sisters, who were present, expressed considerable regret. His mother left the Coliseum. The other youth maintained the contest with such spirit as to call forth enthusiastic bursts of applause. When at last he fell a corpse, his aged mother ran screaming, with hair dishevelled and tears streaming from her eyes, and swooned away just as her hands were clutching at the railings of the arena. She was promptly removed by the police. Under the circumstances the woman's conduct was pardonable, perhaps, but we suggest that such exhibitions interfere with a decorum which should be preserved during the performances, and are highly improper in the presence of the Emperor. The Parthian prisoner fought bravely and well, and well he might, for he was fighting for both life and liberty. His wife and children were there to nerve his arm with their love, and to remind him of the old home he should see again if he conquered. When his second assailant fell, the woman clasped her children to her breast and wept for joy. But it was only a transient happiness. The captive staggered toward her, and she saw that the liberty he had earned was earned too late. He was wounded unto death. Thus the first act closed in a manner which was entirely satisfactory. The manager was called before the curtain, and returned his thanks for the honor done him, in a speech which was replete with wit and humor, and closed by hoping that his humble efforts to afford cheerful and instructive entertainment would continue to meet with the approbation of the Roman public. The star now appeared, and was received with vociferous applause, and the simultaneous waving of sixty thousand handkerchiefs. Marcus Marcellus Valerian, stage name, his real name is Smith, is a splendid specimen of physical development, and an artist of rare merit. His management of the battle-axe is wonderful. His gaiety and his playfulness are irresistible in his comic parts, and yet they are inferior to his sublime conception in the grave realm of tragedy. When his axe was describing fiery circles about the heads of the bewildered barbarians, in exact time with his springing body and his prancing legs, the audience gave way to uncontrollable bursts of laughter. But when the back of his weapon broke the skull of one, and almost in the same instant its edge clove the other's body in twain, the howl of enthusiastic applause that shook the building was the acknowledgment of a critical assemblage that he was a master of the noblest department of his profession. He has a fault, and we are sorry to even intimate that he has. It is that of glancing at the audience, in the midst of the most exciting moments of the performance, as if seeking admiration. The pausing in a fight to bow when bouquets are thrown to him is also in bad taste. In the great left-handed combat he appeared to be looking at the audience half the time, instead of carving his adversaries. And when he had slain all the sophomores, and was dallying with the freshmen, he stooped and snatched a bouquet as it fell, and offered it to his adversary at a time when a blow was descending which promised favorably to be his death-warrant. Such levity is proper enough in the provinces, we make no doubt, but it ill suits the dignity of the metropolis. We trust our young friend will take these remarks in good part, for we mean them solely for his benefit. All who know us are aware that although we are at times justly severe upon tigers and martyrs, we never intentionally offend gladiators. The infant prodigy performed wonders. He overcame his four tiger-whelps with ease, and with no other hurt than the loss of a portion of his scalp. The general slaughter was rendered with a faithfulness to details which reflects the highest credit upon the late participants in it. Upon the whole, last night's performance shed honor not only upon the management, but upon the city that encourages and sustains such wholesome and instructive entertainments. We would simply suggest that the practice of vulgar young boys in the gallery of shying peanuts and 
paper pellets at the tigers, and saying hi and manifesting approbation or dissatisfaction by such observations as bully for the lion, and go it, gladdy, boots, speech, take a walk round the block, and so on, are extremely reprehensible, and the emperor is present, and ought to be stopped by the police. Several times last night, when the supernumeraries entered the arena to drag out the bodies, the young ruffians in the gallery shouted, Soup! Soup! And also, Oh, what a coat! And, Why don't you pad them shanks? And made use of various other remarks expressive of derision. These things are very annoying to the audience. A matinee for the little folks is promised for this afternoon, on which occasion several martyrs will be eaten by the tigers. The regular performance will continue every night till further notice. Material change of program every evening. Benefit of Valerian, Tuesday, 29th, if he lives. I have been a dramatic critic myself in my time, and I was often surprised to notice how much more I knew about Hamlet than Forrest did, and it gratifies me to observe now how much better my brethren of ancient times knew how a broadsword battle ought to be fought than the gladiators. End of chapter 26 BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.